And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, God willing, live tonight from the Land of Enchantment here on the other side of midnight. Well, we have a very complicated show tonight, one of those, you know, I've been adopting kind of a new subtitle for the other side of midnight, everything, everywhere, all at once. There are so many things going on simultaneously. And of course, the real world, the mainstream, the folks that, you know, think they're living in reality, they're treating all of this as all separate. And our model, as we've discussed endlessly on this show for the last several years, is that they're actually at a deeper level connected. And tomorrow night when we have Georgia on, we're going to go into uh, that in a little deeper level. But tonight, I, I just want to start off by talking about the extraordinary, heartbreaking tragedy of Lahaina on Maui, because this is something that just came out of nowhere and is so catastrophic and so devastating and so tragic. It's just, it's just heartbreaking to see a place that... Uh, Robin and I visited just a, a few years ago, and it was live and bustling, and there were all kinds of fascinating people, and there was art, and there were tourists, and there was the ocean, and it, it's to see the aerial imagery, which of course is in my item number one, and the death toll now has officially been raised to 80, and we had a report last night from a source in the islands <clears throat> who initially agreed to uh, come on tonight and then had uh, second thoughts because this individual saw very curious and frankly very bizarre anomalies both in terms of the fires in terms of people's reactions including cops whose first order is of course to serve and protect and they're literally standing on the street walking casually there's fire at the end of the street and they're not even going up and down with their loudspeakers, getting people to evacuate. I mean, it's so extraordinarily weird. And all I'm gonna say is we're doing uh, some background research into what really happened in Lahaina. And I just wanna point out one very important thing because Lahaina stands within what I call the 19.5 degree latitude band. It is the 50th first state of, of, I'm sorry, 50th state of, of United States of America. And frankly, there's another set of components that I will talk about when we put together, what we're going to try to do is put together a show with decent representation of people who were there, who actually witnessed this, who went through this. But there are so many things that are so strange about the fires on Maui and on the Big Island, on Hawaii itself, exactly at 19.5. And it all started on Tuesday night, right after midnight, and it is bizarre, absolutely bizarre. The, the concurrence, the confluence of these independent factors that do not look independent. Anyway, when we have more news, we will be uh, reporting it here and hopefully we'll have some serious background uh, uh, content to present, but I don't want to get ahead of our skis as the uh, phrase goes. So um, 
our anonymous source is uh, decided on second thought because of the anomalies they saw that are frankly very politically uh, incriminating of someone or maybe several levels of someone um, that we're going to hold off on presenting any of this in detail until we kind of know our way around. But it's part of the everything, everywhere, all at once. And later in the show, I'm going to bring a key piece of information back into the uh, Hawaiian story, and uh, you can make up your own mind. The second item, and for those of you who are new to the show, the way you find these items is you go to the banner at the homepage, theothersideofmidnight.com. You click on that banner that takes you to the guest page. Uh, the banner tonight, of course, is I Am Become Death, The Secrets Behind Oppenheimer's A-Bomb with Honiger, Morningstar, uh, and Sarita. And uh, you click on that, that will take you to the guest page. And right under the duplicate banner on the guest page, you will see fast links to items, my name, Barbara Honiger's, um, David and Robert. Uh, Jonathan is going to be with us tomorrow night because we had a little conference and we felt that his contribution is actually more appropriate tomorrow night, as you will see, in terms of the larger context. So Jonathan Womack will not be on tonight. He will be on tomorrow night. Anyway, go to that, uh, look at the fast links, click on my name. That takes you to my items. Item number two, the Russians are heading back to the moon. They launched an unmanned uh, spacecraft, which has been uh, dubbed Luna 25. Their previous unmanned launch to the moon was 47 years ago in 1976. I hope I did the math right on that. Anyway, it's on the order of 50 years, nearly 50 years, and in sequence with their history when they were the <clears throat> Soviet Union, they initially had another name for this mission. They renamed it Luna 25 so that they can uh, keep, uh, you know, in step with their very, uh, you know, exemplary history of lunar exploration. Now, what's really interesting is that they launched on Friday. It will take them on a slightly slower velocity trajectory. Remember, slower trajectories take less fuel take more time. So it's like the uh, proverbial slow boat to China, except in this case, it's a Russian slow boat to the moon. They are headed for lunar orbit. They will go into lunar orbit on uh, the um, uh, about five days after the launch, which would be Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, on Wednesday. And um, then they will spend another five days in lunar orbit, they haven't said what they're doing. I think I know what they're doing. <clears throat> and then, <coughs> excuse me, on the 21st, they're now announcing their intention to land. Remember the Indian mission, which we're going to get into great detail, and of course the Russian mission, next Saturday. We've rescheduled that very seminal program for next Saturday with a uh, panoply of very interesting contributors. Uh, we'll talk about all the details then. At that time, if the Russians have succeeded, they will become the first successful landing at the lunar South Pole. Not the pole itself, but in the nearby vicinity within, you know, a few hundred miles. The 
Indians with Chandrayaan-3, which is their new unmanned mission, which launched on July 14th, very important symbolic date, uh, they announced they have not planned to land before the 23rd. They went into lunar orbit on the 5th. They have been shrinking that orbit with periodic burns of the descent engine on the propulsion stage, lowering the uh, apogee on each orbit. And uh, they're in almost in the right orbit now to try their landing on the 23rd. If the Russians succeed, they will have preceded the Indians by two days. If the Russians get a wave off because of some issues, there is some possibility they could try to land simultaneously on the 23rd. We will keep everyone involved uh, up to date, and we will obviously have a full show next Saturday night with great details because, frankly, it looks like the Indians are going to try this time to use the Hoagland Enterprise mission technique for landing successfully on the moon, for getting down safely through the glass dome, which covers the entire moon in various degrees of degradation. It's much thicker and less destroyed at the lunar poles than on the near side, on the side of the moon that always faces Earth. <clears throat> and it's much in much better condition on the far side. Uh, however, the Chinese have successfully perfected their technique of landing through it. Uh, and we'll get into all the details next Saturday night. But for now, just kind of watch the news, watch the Russians. The, uh, the next uh, data point is on the 21st, which I think is on Wednesday. Let me check that. Oh, this computer is very, very yeah, slow tonight. Um, uh, no, it's on it's on Monday. 21st is on a Monday, you know, a week from uh, day after tomorrow. So uh, and then the, the Indians try to land on Wednesday, which is the 23rd. Glad I checked. Anyway, uh, tonight what we're doing is something that's kind of complicated because we're going to be raising for a lot of you people that are, shall we say, a bit conservative, some outrageous ideas in connection with the uh, uh, test here in southern New Mexico at the Trinity site down near Alamogordo of the first atomic bomb back on uh, July 16th, 1945. And apropos of that, you might want to be take a look at item number three in my section, which is a wired article, very well done, um, going behind the scenes for the story of Oppenheimer's infamous quote, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. It turns out that the quote is not exact, um, which one wonders sometimes, because instead of destroyer, the actual words which are in the title of tonight's show are the shatterer of worlds, which is an even more interesting uh, connotation and meaning of the idea behind destruction. And so uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hold up all the rest of my items, which are going to be part of our discussion, and um, I'm going to go directly to our guests. Uh, what you want to do then, of course, is to click on 
uh, under tonight's banner on the guest page where it says fast links to bios. And in the first order where they're listed, we've got Barbara Honiger, who, of course, was a high-level policy analyst in the Reagan White House. She's been heavily involved in the 9-11 um, uh, lawyers Committee movement to find out what happened with the uh, terrorist attack on 9-11. She's uh, got all kinds of other, um, you know, credits to her, uh, her resume, including uh, a Master's of Science in Consciousness from the JFK University there in Northern California, Master's Level Certification in National Security at the Naval War College, She's twice run as a candidate for Congress from the central coast of California and most recently on the 9-11 Truth Platform. So Barbara Honiger will be joining us. We also have Robert Morningstar, who, as we say, is our civilian intelligence analyst, an investigative journalist, and an actual degree psychotherapist currently living in New York City. And he's got all kinds of other stuff on his resume, photo interpretation, geometric analysis, computer imaging. Uh, he's been involved in artificial intelligence. He's in Who's Who in America. And you can read all about these people if you go to the other side of midnight and just click on their bio connection um, under the banner. Uh, David Sarita is with us. Uh, he was born in Edmonton, Alberta in 1961. And... Um, He's been producing active technologies based on hyperdimensional physics for decades. Uh, he co-produced, directed, and edited scores of documentary films. You can find the list uh, in his bio. And uh, he has produced music for meditation, frequencies for tuning consciousness. And uh, again, his full bio is... Um, there on the on the website. He also has been hanging out with some very interesting people, including Glenn Seaborg, who after the Trinity test and the formation of the Atomic Energy Commission in the 1950s, became head of the AEC in charge of nuclear uh, weapons and nuclear energy, which was kind of later split off uh, as part of the Department of Energy. Anyway, it's a very... Uh, very full house. So what I'm going to do is open the lines and I'm going to ask, because I haven't really checked with anybody beforehand, um, we're going to be talking tonight, guys, about this very contentious, very historical, very misunderstood set of developments leading up to and following the test of the first A-bomb here in New Mexico and then the first use in war <clears throat> on August 6th of 1945 over Hiroshima. Um, and I guess I need to just ask, uh, who wants to go first? Who thinks they have the foundational background to put people in the picture of the very complicated show we're going to be doing tonight about Oppenheimer? And I don't mean the movie. Well, I could. Excellent. That's what I was hoping. <laughs> Barbara, you're up first. <laughs> Using a metaphor that Robert will well understand. A metaphor? What's the metaphor? Baseball. You're up I'm sorry, first. what? Baseball. You're up first. Oh, baseball. Okay. <laughs> I understand. Okay. Well, I would like people to know, and I, I thought maybe you'd mention it before we go into um, the real story behind the Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer film, which is 
actually one of the two major burning facts that I learned in my life that completely boggled my mind and made me realize that I did not understand the world yet. Mm. Uh, but before I before we go into what's behind Oppenheimer, the most important scenes in Oppenheimer and the true historical facts behind them uh, and go to my items, I would just like to remind people that according to the New York Times and the Washington Post anyway, and I think also NASA, tonight is the peak of the Perseid meteor shower. Oh, that's right. Yes, I forgot that. There is an estimate. If if you can see it, if the sky is not cloudy uh, or misty, um, they're estimating 100 meteor meteors an hour should be visible. So it, it, it's a very important thing to do when we're talking about the heavens. Uh, we can actually, when we're done here... Um, for me, I'm in California, that's midnight, and for people on the East Coast, that's 3 a.m., um, you can go out and try to see all those, that incredible... Yeah, by the way, the reason why these peak after midnight is because the Earth is turning, and you're facing the direction of the orbit, and objects that are coming toward you impact at higher velocities, and thus are brighter. So, even though they can catch up to us, depends as the world turns, remember that CBS soap opera? We turn around and we meet them kind of head on. So that's why they kind of are much brighter and more visible after midnight. Okay, very good. Okay, so to get into the subject of tonight's program, what I'd like to do, because I organized my items. So if you want to tell people again how to go to my items. Okay, go to the other side of midnight. That's our website. Click on tonight's banner. That will take you to the guest page. Under that banner on the guest page, you will see uh, fast links to items. You'll click on Barbara's name. That takes to, you, to, you to her section of radio with pictures. And the first item looks absolutely provocative. What are Daniel Ellsberg and Oliver Stone doing in the same shot? <laughs> uh, okay. Well, before I talk about item number one, and I believe there are seven items in my items tonight, uh, before I talk about item number one, I need to give you some background as to why I was at this event at Stanford University in 2013, where Oliver Stone and Oliver Stone's co-author for his amazing book and also his uh, coordinated 12-part documentary series called The Untold History of the United States. In 2013, um, because Stanford University is my alma mater for undergraduate and part of my graduate work, I alerting me to special events there. And in 2013, I think it was in the summer, um, I got an announcement that Oliver Stone and Daniel Ellsberg, who's no longer with us, unfortunately, just recently passed away, uh, Oliver Stone, Daniel Ellsberg, and Professor Peter Kuznick, who is an American history historian. I believe that's he teaches at American University in Washington, D.C., and he was Oliver Stone's co-author and co-producer of the documentary series, the, the Untold History of the United States. So they were going to be talking about Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the Trinity Test. Well... The reason I went to this event at Stanford University, and I'm not 
going to be talking quite yet about my item one. I'm going to give you the context. For 16 years, I was the senior military affairs journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School. And that's here in Monterey, California, the Monterey Peninsula, central coast of California, where I live. And so for 16 years, as the senior military affairs journalist, whenever uh, a VIP in the military or intelligence community, and they came all the time, uh, whenever they would come to the Navy school, which is the Department of Defense officially refers to the Naval Postgraduate School as the premier science, technology, and national security affairs graduate research university of the U.S. Department of Defense. So I was a senior military affairs journalist there for over a decade and a half. And in, in I believe it was probably the year t- 1999 or 2000, there was a conference at the Navy School where one of the professors at the Navy School uh, was speaking on military history. It was a conference on military history, and his presentation was on the Trinity Test, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I covered it for our DOD publications, both on our website and our print publications. Well, his presentation, I was in the front row so that I could hear and take good notes. And so the podium was right in front of me. And point in his presentation, he made a statement that literally suddenly paralyzed my mind. And what he said was that before the Trinity test, that Edward Teller, who went on to become known as the father of the H-bomb, which is at the time was a thousand times more powerful than the A-bomb, and the A-bomb became the trigger for the H-bomb later. But before the Trinity test, Edward Teller came up with a calculation that he took to Oppenheimer and Hans Bethe and a number of other of the top theoretical mathematical physicists at Alamogordo. And Teller said he couldn't rule out He wasn't sure of the probability, but he could not rule out, because there'd never been an atomic test in the atmosphere, he could not rule out that the detonation at the Trinity test would not ignite the atmosphere of the entire planet, kill all life on the planet, all breathing life on the surface, and probably, potentially, the first 20 feet in the oceans. And they went ahead anyway. I heard him say they went ahead Anyway, now you can't interrupt a speaker when he's in the middle of his presentation. I would have lost my job. Um, So I had to wait until the break in the conference, which was after a couple more speakers after him. Then I went up and I said, "Um, I'd like to follow up. Um, I've been assigned to cover the conference and and I want to, to focus. I want to feature your presentation. Can I come to your office tomorrow? He said, sure. When I got to his office, I forget his name at the moment, forgive me, Um, but when I got to his office, I said, did I hear you right that Edward Teller and Oppenheimer and Hans Bethe and the others, not knowing the actual probability, but they could not rule out that all life on the planet would be destroyed because the atmosphere might be ignited in a chain reaction, and that they went all the way to Truman? all the way to the president, and the president, Truman, went ahead anyway, knowing about that calculation and their warning. 
And he says, yes, that's absolutely correct. Well, it was hard for me to believe that. I put it in my article, and it got through all of the the vetting all the way up into the Pentagon. It got into the article, it got printed. Wow. Publications. Okay, so years went by. That was in like 1999, probably, 80, 98, 99. See, most people, certainly most people these days, only know about that because of that scene in Oppenheimer, the movie with Groves. And, well, that's uh, what I'm going to get to And here Oppenheimer, and it's, it's a riveting scene. Uh, yes, let, 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 me, let me do it my way if I could. That's okay. my item number three. Yeah. Okay, so I'm, I'm setting the background for, Open, for, the movie, for this critical scene in the movie Oppenheimer, which really is the fulcrum uh, to the entire plot line. Okay? This calculation that they could not rule out that there might be a chain reaction and that the atmosphere might be ignited going all the way around the planet and kill everything, not just humans, but everything that breathes on the surface of the planet. Okay, so years went by, and in 2013, I learned, now we're in my item one. So in my item one, in 2013, I learned that Daniel Ellsberg and Oliver Stone and Professor Peter Kuznick, the American history historian, were all going to be at Stanford University for a special evening event, a one-time event, um, and it started, I think, 7 o'clock, and I drove there. And I got there early. I got in the front row, and the table, there was no raised dais or stage, so there was just one of those long tables at the front, and I was literally in the front row. And when the three of them came in and came around the back of the table and sat down facing the audience, I was literally a few feet from Daniel Ellsberg, whom I knew well. He and I had worked together on the October Surprise in Iran-Contra. And he came around the table and gave me a big hug. And I took that opportunity in that moment because I saw Oliver Stone's face, like his jaw drop, like, who is this person, meaning me? So I took that opportunity to hand him and Professor Kuznick and Daniel Ellsberg my Behind the Smoke Curtain documentary, my DVD on the Pentagon attack on 9-11, what really happened and what didn't. So their presentation was on chapter three in their book, The Untold History of the United States, which is also one of the 12 documentaries, number three, I believe, uh, in their series by the same title. You can watch those on YouTube, okay? Or maybe on the History Channel, but anyway, they're on YouTube. And it was just, that chapter is called The Bomb. So they played part of that uh, documentary, and then there were there were comments about it. Why that was? They all considered all three of them considered that is the most important uh, chapter in the entire book about the whole century of the twentieth century history of the untold and hidden history of the United States. The li- the very little known history of the United States, the most important turning point. So when it came to the Q's and A's, I was the second or the third person. And my item number one is the, uh, it's on YouTube. It, somebody videotaped it from Stanford University. And um, you can queue up to my question and Professor Kuznick, the historian's answer. I asked the question. I, I said, I've been told by a military historian in an official conference at the Naval Postgraduate School 
this phenomenal claim that the uh, theoretical mathematical physicists at Alamogordo could not rule out that the Trinity test detonation wouldn't ignite the atmosphere and kill all life on the planet. Tell you what, Barbara, we're at the bottom of the hour. Hold it right there. Perfect, perfect tease point. Now, this is an extraordinarily interesting revelation for most people, the current generation who never looked into the history of the bomb. This scene in the movie is stunning. Could people in charge be that lackadaisical? Could they literally roll the dice? Well, tonight, I think I have some new information. So we'll just hold it there. We got three hours, well, two and a half. You're on the other side of midnight. My guests will have riveting information and input to the big discussion we're having tonight about Oppenheimer and the bomb and the secrets which have not been told even in the film. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Welcome back, everyone. My guest tonight discussing Oppenheimer, the bomb development itself and the lead up to it with tangential references to stunning information for most people in the film that after extensive calculation by Dr. Hans Bethe, who had discovered just a few years before on a train going, I think, and up to New York State from New York City, uh, that the stars, like the sun, functioned on a carbon-nitrogen fusion cycle. The calculations around the A-bomb, which was a fission device, not fusion, was that the temperatures may be high enough to trigger a similar reaction in the Earth's atmosphere, which of course is 
plus percent nitrogen. And after the calculations, and going all the way up, according to Barbara, to the President of the United States, Harry Truman, the decision was made to proceed. Barbara, you're back. Okay, so, um, see, where was I? <laughs> During- you, were, you were talking about you're standing up in this uh, session at Stanford, and you raised the idea that you'd ask this question um, about the right, atmosphere right. So, being yeah. detonated. Yes, okay, so so my item number one, um, it looks like Keith has got two videos there, so I'm not quite sure. Uh, when you click on where it says the docx file, right. um, you that doesn't open, but it does download to your computer, then you can open it up. Uh, and I'm going to read you, um, if you went to the video there, which was of the event itself, where you could hear my question, Peter Kuznick's answer to that. This is what Professor, I'm going to read you the transcript of what you we could play on the video. So um, my in the Q's and A's, Professor Kuznick, who is the co-author with Oliver Stone of the Untold History of the United States, uh, including Chapter Three on the bomb, um, he I asked the question, and he said, "Oh yes, it is true." Um, yes, Teller did this calculation and went to Oppenheimer and the other theoretical mathematical physicists and told them that he could not rule out that the detonation could ignite the atmosphere and potentially kill all breathing life on the planet. And this is a transcript of the critical part of Professor, the historian Professor Kuznick's answer to me, uh, which is on the video on YouTube. So um, this is the critical part, okay. So out at Berkeley, they, meaning the Manhattan Project theoretical physicists under Oppenheimer, then did further calculations, all right? And when Oppenheimer understood the risk, he rushed out to see Arthur Compton in Michigan. Now, I should add that Arthur Compton was a theoretical physicist at another site of the Manhattan Project, and he was, he had the final say. Of course, Truman had the final say. Truman could veto. But if Truman said, go ahead, Arthur Compton himself could have said no. So Arthur Compton was the final yes. So Oppenheimer actually takes this warning by Teller to Arthur Compton in Michigan. Could could somebody turn that? There we go. So so, um, Oppenheimer himself rushed out on an urgent basis to Arthur Compton Stop the project until we can figure this out. Okay, stop the entire Trinity project. Now, what's interesting to me is this implies that Arthur Compton was saying to stop both the A and the H-bomb projects, as only the A-bombs were later dropped on Japan. Okay, all right. So then Professor Kuznick goes on, on the video, to say, President Truman then on April 13th, got briefed, 1945, got briefed on this possibility, on the computation, the calculation, by Burns in South Carolina. I believe Burns was his Secretary of War. 
And no, that was Stimson. So I'm not sure who Burns was. But anyway, by Burns in South Carolina. And President Truman later wrote in his published memoirs that Burns said to him, quote, this is a weapon great enough to destroy the entire world. Now, that's based upon their not being able to rule out that the atmosphere would detonate. This is effectively identical to Oppenheimer's famous statement immediately after the Trinity test, I am become death, and as you said, the uh, not just the destroyer of worlds, but the shatterer yeah. of worlds. Yeah. And note, worlds plural. He didn't say the destroyer of the world. Exactly. He said destroyer of worlds. And then continuing, Professor Kuznick. Professor Barton Bernstein, who was the MC at this Stanford event, by the way, Professor Kuznick said, he gave me in the past a document some years ago that after the April 25th, 1945 briefing of Truman by Stimson, that was his Secretary of War, and Army General Leslie Groves, who was the military officer in charge of the Manhattan Project, per Truman's daughter published in Parade Magazine, that they both said, in other words, that both... Um, that both Leslie Groves and Stimson and Truman all said, well, maybe we shouldn't go ahead with the Trinity test. And he, Truman, agreed, maybe then we shouldn't use it. However, shortly thereafter, on July 25, 1945, in Truman's briefing after the Alamogordo test, he obviously changed his mind in the meantime. In his diary, his own diary, Truman says, this may be the biblical fire destruction prophecy in the Euphrates Valley after Noah and his ark. And so this is Professor Kuznick now. So President Truman knew this. He knew the road they were taking us on. Unquote. Yeah, uh, Barbara, James Burns, according to Robert Church, was yeah. the director of FDR's newly created office of war mobilization. Ah, very good. So he was so an oversight uh, guy at the, at the White House overseeing the Department of War. Right. So people need to understand. I mean, I had to confirm and confirm and confirm with multiple historians, right? With Oliver Stone, with, with historian Peter Kuznick, and with Daniel Ellsberg, that this is a fact that all the top people who were in charge of the nuclear bomb projects, the A-bomb and the H-bomb, knew or, or could not rule out that the Trinity test itself would destroy all life on Earth. Now, anyway, luckily it wasn't the case. Well, do we yes. have any data on why they went ahead? No. Because I think I have some new news which I'll okay. talk about toward the end of the show that will give, I'm hoping, everybody a new insight into this entire sequence of events. But I don't want to, up, up, you know, basically intrude on your story. Okay, so let's go to the rest of my items will be much quicker. Uh, my second item, uh, it's, it's actually a link, a PDF. And again, when you click on these, it may not open directly it may download to your computer so you might have to do that before you open it and read it but this is a critical 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 article it's called Oppenheimer Oppenheimer films troubling ending the ending of the film is on this calculation 
this very calculation that the Trinity test theoretical physicists couldn't rule out that it could ignite the entire atmosphere in a chain reaction and kill all life on the, and that they went ahead anyway. This is there are two turning points in the movie Oppenheimer that are historically accurate. The the obvious one is the Trinity test when it went off, it didn't ignite the atmosphere. Thank God. But the most important mentality of the people who hold and can use these most dangerous weapons that they still to this day cannot rule out that a, a, a sufficient number of of nuclear weapons, if they were ignited in the atmosphere, could not, in fact, in the future, ignite the atmosphere and destroy all life on the planet. So it is very synchronistic that this massive fire just happened in Lahaina. Because it looks like what happened in Lahaina looks like Hiroshima. After the, That's the first after reaction the I, I had, because uh, Kinthea was in Lahaina uh, last year, I believe. Uh, That's Robin, right. Robin and I were there. Uh, the aerials look exactly like Hiroshima. Um, That's this, right. This all started the night of the 8th, going into the 9th of August, which is only a couple of days after Hiroshima. Uh, but the key thing, and again, I don't want to get ahead of my skis, but the key thing is the latitude and other events that we're going to put together and try to present a coherent uh, explanation of what's happened and the theoretical background behind it. And I don't want to, you know, speculate uh, too freely yet because we're, we're, all, we're trying to put our ducks in a row because this does not appear to be a normal grass fire, even if the winds from Hurricane Dora or Typhoon Dora several hundred miles away were like 60, 70 miles an hour. Um, our eyewitness says that things happened that no amount of, you know, windblown grass or, you know, embers or whatever could have uh, resulted in, uh, which right. is which is pretty astonishing. But it does reinforce my independent analysis that there's something bizarre in an era of more bizarre things all happening at once about what happened in Maui uh, a few days ago. Right. Okay, so my item number three is a similar article. These are, in my opinion, number two and number three items, yeah, under Barbara's items, are the most important reviews of the movie Oppenheimer. And by the way, every single person listening to this program around the world must see that film. Because the, the fulcrum, the literal fulcrum, of the film and the actual historical background behind the film is this calculation and the mentality of the people who went ahead with the with the A bomb tests at Trinity and then dropped the A bomb. Well, it, it, it's almost back. like there was a decision facing this decision group: either stop fascism or end life. So That's the, correct. So and the they, choice was between because yeah. if we ended life, we wouldn't know it anyway, and and life living under fascism is not life. So it's like somebody at the Truman level made a very hard ass decision. I have new information, which, as I said, we'll talk about later in the show, that really puts I think a totally different light on this than the current 
contemporary history, including that riveting scene in uh, Nolan's movie. Uh-huh. Well, uh, we might have a debate on that, um, <laughs> but, but, uh, but that's okay. That's good. Uh, so number three in my items, the troubling, this is an article, um, the troubling reverberations at the end of Oppenheimer Explained. Now, I'm actually going to read this. For those who have not actually seen the movie Oppenheimer, this is a very important uh, excerpt from what I consider to be one of the two most important reviews. Um, so here's a key excerpt. And uh, there is some there is some text in parentheses I've added for clarification. So this is from the article, the, the uh, review. The key moment in the movie Oppenheimer and the one that strikes the darkest note that the film actually closes on is when Oppenheimer reminds Einstein of an earlier conversation they had before the Trinity test of the first atom bomb when the Manhattan Project physicists were worried that the chain reaction caused by the bomb might never end. That is, it might be a chain reaction that could proceed to ignite the Earth's atmosphere and destroy the planet. This is not an exaggeration. They were afraid of that. When I quote, when I came to you with those calculations, Oppenheimer tells Einstein in the film, we thought we might start a chain reaction that might destroy the entire world. What of it? Einstein asks. Oppenheimer answers, I believe we did. This conversation between Oppenheimer and Einstein uh, and Robert Morningstar, but also of the author of this review, um, okay, this conversation between Oppenheimer and Einstein is the movie's secret, emotional, and I would add historical fulcrum, turning point, okay? Note that this conversation is occurring in 1947, just two years after the 1945 July 16th Trinity blast and the bombings shortly after of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in early August of 1945. As the camera closes in on Oppenheimer's face at the very end of the film, it cuts to an array of modern-day nuclear missiles seen from space as if from the International Space Station or from a satellite. Drifting among the clouds, we, the audience, see vapor trails of nuclear missiles being fired through the air, through the atmosphere. We then see explosions starting to race across the surface of the planet. Their blast radius is unspeakably vast, and a ring of fire begins to consume the entire Earth. It is an astonishingly powerful ending, in part because it gives grim, grim cinematic life to the generational fear that nuclear weapons are effectively Chekhov's gun, the famous Russian author. Chekhov's gun is a weapon introduced in an earlier act of our lives that will inevitably in, be in the author's plotline, will inevitably be used before our story ends. Christopher Nolan, who was the scriptwriter and director of the film, Nolan, like many of us, grew up under the specter of thermonuclear annihilation during the Cold War. It is an old and defining fear that has been dormant in recent years, really gone away, has it? Recent events in Russia and Ukraine have served as grisly reminders that we all remain just a hair triggers away from incinerating ourselves in a planet-wide nuclear holocaust. Okay, my fourth item. This is very important. Uh, Robert, Robert Morningstar and I consider this very critical. 
the same two people. Now, I need to add that it wasn't actually Einstein that had the, it, the actual interaction in history. Um, it was with this, uh, this Arthur um, Compton. Whatever Arthur Compton. Uh, Arthur Compton. It was Arthur Compton and Oppenheimer who had the actual discussion that Christopher Nolan put Simon you know, it's, it's much better cinematically to have it be Einstein yes. and Oppenheimer. Yes, that is correct. However, the actual two men, Oppenheimer and Einstein, in June of 1947, wrote a letter to President Truman. In which you recall, it was in the wake of Trinity and Hiroshima and Nagasaki that the that the modern wave of UFOs and UAPs, whatever you want to call them, started big time. And so Oppenheimer and Einstein knew this and the connection between the two. So Oppenheimer's and Einstein's letter to President Truman, which my item is an actual link. I hope the link is there. Um, let's see. Um well, the link doesn't actually open. I will send, I will ask uh, Keith to include so that your audience uh, can read all four pages of the letter. But this is the key excerpt from the letter because the letter assumes, assumes that there are alien entities associated with these craft in some way that, that came back, as it were, uh, as a result of the Trinity, Hiroshima, Nagasaki bombings. Okay, so this is the key kind answer. Of, kind of like... Oh, very much so. So it has to be the case that uh, these nuclear detonations in the atmosphere at the time, and we're going to, I'm going to fast forward to one of my later items, one of the most, the signature achievement of President Kennedy, one of which, for which he was murdered, he was assassinated, was that he pushed through the um, treaty that banned atmospheric tests with with, uh, with with Khrushchev. With Khrushchev, yes, and then the mentality of the people who went ahead with the Trinity test, despite the fact that they couldn't rule out it could kill all life on the planet. Okay, so well, hang on, hang on a second. You know, I'm. Yeah. We'll get into the real details later in the show, but sometime between April. When Truman got the briefing where he said maybe we shouldn't, and right. and July when they did, yes, something happened that we don't know about. What changed well, Truman's yes, the, mind? Yeah, I think I think what happened. This is this is my informed historical opinion. Um, what happened was the very clear knowledge that the Nazis were working on the A-bomb, and so were the Japanese. I just got a book through the mail called Japan's Secret War, which everyone should read about the Japanese A-bomb program. So um, the Japanese and the Nazis under Hitler were working Well, the Nazis actually sent a submarine loaded with uh, uranium oxide to Japan to to help their war effort. That is correct. And then all the details are in this amazing book called Japan's Secret War. So now I'm going to read you this key excerpt from the letter from the real Oppenheimer and the real Einstein to President Truman in June of 1947. Um, and it's, <clears throat> excuse me. Which is two years after the war ended, after the Trinity test had taken place, after Hiroshima, Nagasaki, 
and we all were still here. We were all still here, but they didn't know that when they set off the Trinity bomb. No, I'm, okay. I'm, 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 I'm saying in June 1947. Yes, correct. Okay, so this is um, the, the, the actual uh, title of the uh, four-page letter by Oppenheimer and Einstein to Truman of June 1947. Um, the actual title uh, refers to... Um, uh, it, re it refers... The entire letter assumes the reality of alien visitors in these craft and that the alien visitors in these craft were triggered by the Trinity, Hiroshima, Nagasaki Okay, bomb. one question. How do, what's our source, Einstein, Oppenheimer letter? Well, let me read you the quote first, okay? Um, the, it, I believe it came out in, I believe it was leaked in 2016. Robert Morningstar could correct me on that, but it's been only leaked recently, and it is, it does have the, uh, the note at the top draft in the same handwriting of Van of Vannevar Bush. Okay, so but how did how the, did the public get access to it? I don't know. Maybe Robert Morningstar will be able to answer your question later when he comes on. Okay, but let, let me read this critical uh, again. I'm going to get the link to. Uh, to Keith to post because everybody needs to read all four pages of this letter. Okay, here's the critical quote. International law should make place for a new law on a different basis which might be called the law among planetary peoples following the guidelines found in the Pentateuch. Now the Pentateuch are the five books of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Now what's important to me and to Robert Morningstar about this and I alerted him to this, he hadn't thought of it yet but now he understands its criticality that what these two Jewish nuclear scientists are saying our top scientists are saying to the President of the United States is that we the Hebrew people cut the original covenant with them and you should let us cut negotiate and cut the new covenant with them now that they have returned okay mm -hmm. all right so Considering, this is Oppenheimer and Einstein to Truman, we should consider the possibility that our nuclear tests of late could have influenced the arrival of these celestial visitors and their scrutiny. They could have been curious or even alarmed by such activity. In conclusion, it is our professional opinion, based on submitted data, that this situation, meaning with them, having come in the wake of the nuclear A-bomb tests, and the dropping of the bombs in Japan, um, that this situation is extremely perilous and that measures must be taken to rectify a very serious problem that is very apparent, okay? Um, you have to read all four pages of this letter, which assumes the presence of alien visitors, okay? Um, now, now this is very, very important. Um, this is an urgent warning that that I had written for this program when it was originally going to be aired on, as it turned out, Hiroshima Day, which was August 6th. But you fell down the stairs, and I hope your leg's better. <laughs> Much better, thank you. The light <laughs> machine is astonishing technology. Astonishing. No kidding. Well, I've got to get one. Okay. Um, so this is the warning that I was going to put out that night on your show, and I'm putting it out now. When the movie Pearl Harbor premiered in May of 2001, the obvious question then was, 
Why are they putting out a movie about World War II now? Why now? Yeah, Robin and I went to it and we asked exactly that question. Exactly. Right. Well, I, well, we know the answer now. Months later, the 9-11 text happened, which the mainstream media and our government uh, principals all the way from President Bush and Vice President Cheney on down instantly and repeatedly referred to with the meme, the new Pearl Harbor. 9-11 was the new Pearl yeah, Harbor. Yeah, which of course doesn't work unless the general population are familiar with the old one. Original Pearl Harbor, at least the myth about it, that it was a yep. surprise attack, yep. Yep. which it was not a surprise attack. Okay. Now, this is my warning continued. Now, with our country becoming even more polarized and divided in the wake of Trump's January 6th related indictment, the film Oppenheimer about in, about nuclear weapons being used in war, Putin announces that, quote, this is just the other day, if Ukraine's counteroffensive succeeds, we, the Russians, will have no choice but to use nuclear weapons, unquote. Just as with the movie Pearl Harbor, I do not believe it is a coincidence that Hollywood, which has partnered closely with the military, has just come out with a film that puts the actual use of nuclear of the U.S. national psyche, the purpose of which I believe is to prepare the American public and all viewers of this film worldwide for a potential new Hiroshima, for the first use of nuclear weapons in war since Hiroshima and Nagasaki, whose actual use, like the original Pearl Harbor, would instantly unify and inflame the United States. We, the American people and the people of the world, must be extremely vigilant and skeptical if such a thing should happen. And just as with 9-11 and the movie Pearl Harbor, we must not uncritically accept official immediate claims as to what happened and who did it. Okay. Um, okay, we are, we are at the top of the hour, so let's hold it there. My guests this morning are Barbara Honiger, Robert Morningstar, David Sarita, who will be joining us shortly. We're discussing the background to this seminal film, um, Oppenheimer, and Barbara's warning, which is just as Pearl Harbor of 9-11 was foreshadowed by a major Hollywood film, maybe things on the level of Hiroshima have been foreshadowed by a major Hollywood film. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Side of Midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. 
support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, August 12th, one week from the anniversary of Hiroshima. Barbara is regaling us with a riveting background story, which is, of course, depicted in the film that the um, calculations leading up to the Trinity test of the first fission bomb spearheaded uh, the the team by Rapp and Oppenheimer... actually did not know if, in fact, ignition of this extraordinary weapon would ignite the Earth's atmosphere and destroy within hours, because of the way the blast wave would move around the world, the atmosphere, the oceans, all life, turning us into a sterile, dead, gray sphere, uh, down to a level where perhaps life could not Regenerate, although that is in question based on what we saw at Mount St. Helens. The point is that we would be gone, and it would be millions of years before something arose, maybe to take our place. I mean, this is this is cataclysmic stuff, and it's not fiction; it's part of the public record. And then she pointed out that before 9/11, titled. Uh, by all the pundits as the new Pearl Harbor. A major feature film, Pearl Harbor, came out with uh, major, major actors. You know, I'm trying to remember. I think Ben Affleck was in it and Matt Damon. And 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 the consensus is among some people that this was a foreshadowing to bring the current generation up to the idea of a sneak attack a la Pearl Harbor to go with the meme surrounding... 9-11. And now, of course, she points out that Chris Nolan's film has brought the idea of nuclear war and the horrors of an all-out nuclear conflict and the detonation of thousands of H-bombs in the atmosphere, which, by the way, would not trigger the same thing they were worried about in 1945, and I'll get into that uh, when we get into the section of the show later in the morning, uh, that it's a foreshadowing of what would happen if Putin were to use a nuclear weapon in in regard to the conflict in, in Ukraine, which is the biggest land war since World War II in Europe. Anyway, on that note, Barbara, please continue. Can, can you hear me, Richard? Yes, bye-bye. Oh, okay, good. Um, I'm almost done um, with my major... You don't have to keep major. saying that, okay? Because well, you can we go... Have, we, have as, other, we have other guests. Yeah, yeah. But I do... I, I'm almost done. And I want to commend Robert for his, you know, self-control. Because I'm, yes. I'm, I'm going to him next, okay? Okay, all right. So I... Um, 
Regarding my uh, first item, I forgot to say that um, when you click on the video of the Stanford event with Oliver Stone, Peter, Professor of History, Peter Kuznick, and Daniel Ellsberg, if you fast forward to 45 minutes in and 10 seconds, 45 minutes, 10 seconds in, that begins my question and Professor Kuznick's answer that I read the, the uh, transcript from. Are you, so, on, are you on television, on camera? Well, the back of my head, yeah. <laughs> okay. But I mean, it was, the, it was the most important question that was asked. Well, obviously, okay. yes. Okay, so um, um, I would like to say, uh, before I go to my uh, next to last item, because my last item, um, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know why I'm not going to go into that um, uh, at this point in the, in the program later. If, if Trump's indictment comes up, I can go into that, but, but it's not directly relevant. Um, but anyway, um, so my fifth item is that urgent warning uh, about the film Oppenheimer that they are preparing us for a new Hiroshima for the actual use of nuclear weapons. And I want to remind people that that phenomenal scene of what they were afraid could happen with the Trinity test is actually what Christopher Nolan, the director and scriptwriter, has you see as if from the International Space Station happening on the planet. Yeah, the except, 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 to ignite. except that is Nolan's fantasy. It cannot happen. And it cannot, <laughs> and it cannot happen that way. And we'll save the details to while I do my I understand that, Richard. I'm just letting people know that it was their fear that he is manifesting in the final scene. Oh, scenes right, of the movie. right, exactly. But we know that, that has, we know that fear is not yes. is not scientifically uh, defensible. It it cannot happen for a bunch of reasons, and we know it didn't happen. And it doesn't happen even if there were nukes all over the world exploding. It would not happen. However, okay. there is a I'm much. I'm just making that, a fact statement here. I understand. That that's the final I, scene in the movie. Yeah, but okay. but the scene in the movie is an extrapolation of a fantasy. It's just to bring it home to people emotionally that we're on the knife edge of nuclear annihilation, regardless of the teller scenario. I understand, you know, but it wasn't a fa it wasn't a fantasy in the minds of the nuclear physicists at Alamogordo. And the something trip. happened between the April meeting and the July detonation, and that's what I'm going to fill in the gap with okay. as we get further down in the, in the, in the you know, yeah. okay. to the show. Okay, so my final, my, my well, okay, my, my next to last item, which didn't show up for some reason, I'm going to send it to Keith. Keith, you don't have to put it up tonight if you're too busy, but uh, certainly please do put it up in the archive version. It's an extremely important article that I thought I'd sent to Keith. And it's called The Ultimate Catastrophe. And the it's by H.C. Dudley. Is this, is, a, is this item number seven? No, it's not in my items. It didn't get Oh, oh okay, okay, okay. It's Sorry. extremely important article. It's called The Ultimate Catastrophe. It was published in the November 1975 issue of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. And it is a... Yeah, there, there's, a there's a guys that keep holding this countdown clock and they keep That's moving right. the hands... Five minutes to midnight, two minutes to midnight. That's I, right. I forget where it is now. I think it's seven seconds to midnight. Oh, good like grief. That. Yeah. Okay. So so this article, it's very important because it does need to be added to my items later, at least. It's called The Ultimate Catastrophe. It's, the subtitle is, it's times a new computer 
calculation on the real chances of a high-order fusion explosion inducing a runaway chain reaction in the atmosphere. Okay, so this is a rebuttal to Hans Bethe. Hans Bethe was one of the theoretical physicists who, after the Trinity test, poo-pooed the claim that they couldn't rule out that it would ignite the atmosphere. No, they couldn't rule it out. And there was an actual calculation of the probability. This article goes into it, and it makes a very cogent and compelling case that they vastly underestimated the probability and that it could happen in the future. So this this particular author would probably disagree with you. Hmm. Uh, when was okay. this written? Uh, nine, November 1975, okay. and I will send it to you. I think I already have. Okay. Um, but uh, but anyway. Well, we know a lot more now. 2023, we have supercomputers and much finer exactly. modeling calculations and all that. So Exactly. Exactly. Okay, my final item that I'm going to mention now um, is number uh, six. And um, this is a very short piece. It's only about five minutes long, a little bit less. Um, a, an excerpt from a lecture by a military historian, and the title is, Did Nuclear Weapons Cause Japan to Surrender? The answer is absolutely not. Um, they were completely militarily unnecessary to cause Japan to, to surrender. They were for the benefit, if you will, in quotes, of the Soviet Union. Okay. Um, so, so not only did they go ahead with the Trinity test, despite the warning that it could kill all life on the planet, even though that didn't happen in the actual Trinity test. They didn't know that in advance, and even President Truman decided to go ahead anyway. And did they Well, wait, wait, wait. Again, some new information happened between April and July, and that's what I'm going to talk about later in the show. Well, I think you should talk about it in just another minute, because I'm almost done, and I think it should come in now. But anyway... Um, it, it's important for people to realize that the same man, President Truman, who decided to drop the bomb or decided to go ahead with the Trinity test anyway, despite the calculation, that he also made the decision for no militarily ne necessary reason to drop the bombs on Hiroshima and then two days later on Nagasaki. And they also had a third bomb ready to go, so uh, which wasn't dropped. Okay, so that's my presentation, and I really think you should let us know why you. Well, I'm going I'm, I'm to hold that till till after Robert, because Robert's been incredibly okay. patient, and I obviously he has reactions to all of this. You guys did a brilliant show with Robert on his radio program on this. So, Robert, you're on. Hello, Robert. There he is. Thank you, Barbara. An excellent presentation. Well, where to begin? Let me begin by saying that uh, an act of God made the Hiroshima blast much less than it could have been. And in my estimation, thank God, literally, thank God, the atom bomb in Hiroshima was a failure. And the reason is that they calculated that only 1.9% of the fissionable material actually fizzed. And they recovered 14 pounds of the uranium uh, from the blast. When you say they, was this the Japanese or the Americans after the... After the, uh... the Americans, the, the, the Americans Amer and the Japanese. Okay. And the Japanese. Here, I've got, I've got a very shocking thing uh, to share with you. Uh, 
I hope that we can get uh, my final item up. And if it's not, I'll just say to the audience, I would appreciate it if you would go to Substack to the Morningstar Report newsletter. It's very easy. It's my name, Robert Morningstar, Robert.substack.com. And you can uh, scroll down to In Memoriam, 78th anniversary of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki atom bomb attacks. So when Keith adds it, it will be a number nine in your item. Yes, it'll be, and you can get okay. it then. A well, most times. people don't refer to these items during the show anyway, so yeah, okay. the archive anyway, is fine. If, if they want to see it, because uh, I'm referring to it myself, it's, it's a comprehensive article on the atomic bomb attacks, the decision to drop the bomb, the crews, the aircraft, and this um, Oppenheimer, the atomic gangster, that's my name for him. They're trying to paint him as a tragic hero. He was no hero. As a matter of fact, in one of those items, it's, uh, one item is already uh, published there. The Huntley and Brinkley report from 1965 will open everyone's eyes to the real nature of Oppenheimer. Whereas they're trying to portray him as a guilt-ridden anti-hero victim. And you know, in our society now, if you're a victim, you're a hero. Well, this guy is neither. Port, 1965, where most of the protagonists, including Oppenheimer, Teller, Leo Szilard, the Japanese military leaders, Burns is in it as well. All of them are still alive. And you get the story from the horse's mouth. And if there's only if there's one hero in this whole thing, I would say it's Leo Zillard. Leo Zillard, along with Einstein in 1939, wrote a letter to FDR warning him that they had learned that the Nazis were working on an atom bomb and encouraged him to, um, to develop the Manhattan District. And that was the official name of the Manhattan Project. And Einstein, in order to facilitate that, Einstein developed an idea for extracting U-235 from U-238, and it was a gas, gas diffusion filter, which would mean ultimately vaporizing uranium-238 into a gas and passing it through a fine filter that would extract uranium-235. So he is really the father of the atomic bomb, even though Oppenheimer uh, tinkered and put it together. Robert, yes, uh, I just your the viewers or listeners should know that the uh, Huntley Brinkley report is your item number eight. Yes, it's it's there already. It's very important, but it's embedded in this comprehensive article. Thank you. In that art, in that uh, report, you find out that Leo Zillard, after the bomb was uh, fashioned and about to be tested, and realized that they didn't need to use it against the Nazis. Uh, also tried to dissuade Truman and the other scientists from using the bomb. He organized a committee of scientists called the Frank, the Frank Committee, 60 scientists who all signed the letter asking that the bomb not be used. And Oppenheimer, when Teller received the letter from Leo Szilard, Oppenheimer became aware of it. And he chastised 
Edward Teller, and he chastised Leo Szilard and said that Leo Szilard was abusing his status as a scientist to interfere and try to influence policy. He said that the decision was to be made by politicians, not by scientists, and that Leo Gillard was stepping out of bounds in trying to dissuade the use of the atom bomb. So right there, you have it. In that snippet of video, interviewing the main man, men, Teller and Gillard were still alive in those days, and they were speaking openly about it. And so it really rests on Einstein and Oppenheimer's shoulders squarely that they were the fathers of the atom bomb they knew what they were doing and they unleashed this demon on mankind and its effects are still being felt i'm going to reveal something to you in a couple of minutes but i want to finish the thought about the failure of the little boy only 1.9 percent of the fissionable material actually fizzed as i say Similarly, well, hang on. This is in comparison to the Trinity test, where it was almost 100% efficient in terms of the plutonium or the uh, the uranium, etc. If they say, I don't, I don't know that to be a fact. I don't believe anything the scientists say anymore, actually. Yeah, but then you have no basis for any decision about anything, Robert. You got to believe somebody and something to the level that you can check. Otherwise, you're you're powerless. Of course. Well, I'm not going to believe war criminals at this point in history, okay? And the point here is to prevent this from happening again. Barbara has brilliantly analyzed this psychological operation that's being foisted on us. She pointed out that when Pearl Harbor came out in 2001, I remarked to myself, why the hell are they been?" Um, 60, uh, 59 years? Well, no, the anniversary was in July of Trinity. I'm talking about Pearl Harbor, Richard. I'm talking about psychological okay. application of uh, psyops on people. So you're going back to 2000? Yeah, I'm going back to 2001 in May okay. when okay. Pearl Harbor came out. I said, man, is that bad timing? You should, re- you know, if you're going to do release a movie like this, you do it. Somewhere near the anniversary. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, that was, but that was 2001. That was 59 years and a half. But here we are in 2023, still two years away from the anniversary of Hiroshima and Nagasaki's um, 80th anniversary. And they choose the 78th anniversary. And I say to myself, you know, that's weird timing. And my only conclusion is that they're trying to prepare the American public, exposing us to Hollywood special effects, nuclear bombs that habituate the person. They make you used to it. They they get you, uh, well, actually... Uh, Desensitized. Well, it becomes a cultural meme. Yes, all right. right. So. so, my concern is that I've been hearing everybody play, uh, accusing uh, Putin of using, potentially using a nuclear bomb and the prospect of tactical nuclear well, war. Well, he keeps bringing it up. Well, they keep bringing up going in with NATO full bore and to end... Uh, who is also- the guy who's proposing the use of nukes in, in Ukraine? It's Putin. Nobody else. This actually started a week before 
the whole thing about nuclear threats started a week before the invasion when Zelensky came out and said, we have to reestablish our nuclear weapons development program. That, that is a lie, first... Robert. That is a no, lie. No, Richard. Yes, that's it not is. a lie because I heard him say it myself. So Post it. That... Post a link to his actual don't speech. Don't give me that then. shit of you. That's a lie, Richard. No, it I'm is a lie. Post a link to the actual speech. It's, it's really... not a lie. I heard him say it. You what, well, That's the reason I have Then the rest of us have to hear it to believe you. Well, don't call anybody on your show a liar if you want them to stay on the I show. I didn't say you were lying. I you said, said you're that's a lie. No, to say be, it's a because lie you're repeating, lie. you're repeating lying propaganda. You may think it's true. I'm not lying. Then post the link. That's all. He was, heard he, it. he was even on Tucker Carlson. He was the one also post who was banding it about. Link. Oh, yeah. Okay, now listen. Just post the link. That's all. Then apologize for calling me a liar. I did not call you a liar. I said... You said that's a lie. Yeah, but it, I didn't say you lied. You're repeating propaganda you don't know that's is propaganda. That's rationalization. I'm really getting fed up with this. What I am going to tell you... Don't you like open conversation, demon, Robert? Do you want people to agree demon, with you 100%? The demon that was released at Hiroshima and Nagasaki is still poisoning the world. In Nagasaki... They recovered, it was also a failure. And the Japanese recovered a tremendous amount of plutonium. And that plutonium is what caused the explosion at Fukushima. When I saw the Fukushima explosion, I saw the blue radiation come off the roof at the first blast. And I knew it was a nuclear explosion. It turns out that The Japanese army closed off the blast sites until the American occupation and managed to recover from Nagasaki at least 20 kilograms of fragments of enriched uranium for study and reuse. Yeah, that's South almost 50 pounds. Nuclear Bomb Research and Development Center, which like a living ghost still haunts the devastated TEPCO Fukushima nuclear plant also secretly fueled by uranium and plutonium transfers from the USA, specifically the Pantex recycling plant for the nuclear weapon industry that was released by Einstein and Oppenheimer is still killing people, destroying nature, and is still a threat to everyone here. And we must all see to it that this administration, this warmongering administration of Joe Biden, seems hell-bent on getting us involved in a land war in Europe against Russia. And Russia has warned that if NATO and the United States join together and invade Ukraine with the object of destroying Russia, they will use nuclear weapons. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure where you're going with this because we, we agree that nukes are bad. They will kill the human race. The guy who's been threatening nukes is Putin, nobody else. They have, listen, there was an explosion about three months ago of a depot, arms depot in Ukraine. And it was the biggest explosion that I have seen since the Nagasaki blast. Because the Hiroshima blast is not on film. All those films that you see of a purported to be uh, Hiroshima, they're all really different angles of the Nagasaki blast. Be that as it may, 
I recognize that as the biggest explosion. Much black mushroom cloud rising up. They said that it was a depot that was storing British leopard tanks and munitions for those tanks and fuel. But I found out from some of my friends in the Pentagon that there were two tactical nuclear weapons in that stash that the British had snuck into Ukraine. And they thank God in the Pentagon that those tactical nukes did not explode. It's contaminated with radiation, not just from And the, how do we know this? Because of radiation findings. Who in is the air. measuring the radiation? Who is posting the readings? Where can we find yeah. the source? Yeah. Well, it's just source- a simple question, Robert. Sourcing. There's so much misinformation and deliberate disinformation flowing around. Richard, Robert is never a source of disinformation, ever. Let me give you a a second. I'm just asking him to post the original source of the data he's quoting, that's all. The data is that Ukrainians have been measuring the radiation levels in that area. And where is this posted? The reason the radiation level is so high. Where is is this posted? do a search, Richard. Read no, more. you're the one pr- proposing this. I'm telling you. Send I'm me a link. You where I got the sources. The sources. He will, Richard. Give place. him time. Hold on a second. Hold on. A second. Thank you, Barbara. There was so much depleted uranium weaponry, ammo, in that depot that the detonation. Well, wait, wait, wait. You'd weapons grade. It doesn't explode. It's just a super dense metal used to, used to pierce tanks. And depleted radioactive uranium is a danger, is a terrible danger. That's right. And that's, what I, that's it, part of it. It is probably how Biden's son, how Biden's son Bo died. We can't both talk together. Up. We've got one of us and then the other, okay? Depleted could uranium. Hear, could we just hear Robert's presentation? This is a conversation, guys. It's not just straight presentation. If you don't so agree, if you don't agree with those ground rules, when, when you raise something that I find issue with, I will ask a question. That's, that's my role. That's fine with me. Just don't call me a liar. I did okay? not call you a liar. I said the idea that Zelensky proposed using nuclear weapons was a lie. And I simply said, you're repeating someone else's lie. You're not doing it and yourself. And I'm telling you that I heard him say it in Then Ukraine. give me a link. And I heard it. Listen, we'll get it. And you'll be very embarrassed when I send it to you. And I will No, insist. I will not be embarrassed. I will I, 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 like, it's still I will called hearsay in a court of law. It's still called hearsay in a court of law unless you can nail That's the actual okay. source. Okay. Let's go on. That is David Sarita who's joined about Barbara and research, I reproduced... Okay, guys, we're, 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 by the way, at the bottom of the hour. So let's just all regroup, take a deep breath. Um, I'm not calling anyone a liar on the show. I am saying that that propaganda is straight from Russia, and it's a lie, and it's very simple to check. We live in a time when you can check this stuff. What an amazing idea that you can actually check wild rumors and track them down to where they're originally posted. Anyway, you're all on the other side of midnight, a very lively other side of midnight tonight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
website of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Saturday. Saturday night, August uh, 12th. My guests this morning are Barbara Honiger, Robert Morningstar. David Sarita chimed in there. We'll get to him in a moment. Uh, Robert, uh, all I'm asking for is references. I mean, when I go on shows, if I'm going to say something incredibly contentious that I know is controversial, that I know is, you know, not... A, the wisdom of most of everybody I I tried to document all I'm asking you to do is to document if this was a Zelensky speech that you heard or saw it's got to exist somewhere on the internet just find it post it at one of your items and if in fact it's true if Zelensky really said this of course I'll apologize but I've seen analyses that say it's Russian propaganda that he said this and there is no direct reference to anything Zelensky said um, in that manner. So if, if you have different information, we obviously will post it here. Anyway, back so to my I guest, Robert. The chat. On Robert? October 7th of 2022, Zelensky, in a rage, asked for a first strike nuclear attack on Russia. And in these two articles, they're trying to play it down. The France 24 and the Newsweek article are saying not exactly. But he was in such a rage, he called for the United States to launch a first strike nuclear attack on Russia. Those two. In the week before, and I will find you the, the speech where he said that it was necessary for Ukraine to reestablish its nuclear development industry. Well, you so, realize that Ukraine used to be the nuclear development center yes, of the I old do. Soviet Union, right? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I know that. As a matter of fact, my company... And they voluntarily gave up all their nukes when Russia, you know, uh, split off the, the, the right. Soviet Union. Yeah. 
And they made an agreement in 2014 called the Minsk Agreements. And they promised Putin that NATO would never expand into Eastern Europe. Bush made the promise to Gorbachev. Are we getting kind of lost in the weeds? We're talking no, about Oppenheimer. I'm just, you, I'm just telling you that NATO is responsible for this war. They want us to go to war with Russia. Well, that is your and, opinion, Ron. Of course, and I'm here to All express right. my opinion and the facts that I know. And Does everything that, I said to you. Give his opinion. And everything I said is factual. I heard with my own ears many times, several times, that that claim on uh, part of Zelensky, and then this one from October of last year. Everyone went bonkers. Everyone went crazy because he's out of his mind, Zelensky. But the point is, we're being manipulated. We're being cowed into an attitude of the only way to solve this problem is to have a war with Russia and wipe them out. That's not going to happen. That is not going to happen. And we have crazy people in Washington running the show. Can we get back to Oppenheimer? Sure. Let me go to my items. I'd like to get back to the letter that uh, Barbara and I have been analyzing, which I consider a betrayal of the human race by Oppenheimer and Einstein, acknowledging that there was an alien presence on this planet, and they established themselves as the high priesthood. By the way, do you have sourcing on this letter? The letter was released by Majestic Documents, Dr. Robert Wood. Ah, that's what I I thought. Has a long history of accessing secret documents. No, no, the Woods have been extraordinary, exemplary, both the father and the son, in finding these secret documents and making them public. So I just need to know the source. The burnt memo. The the burnt memo. As a matter of fact, I'd like to point you to the the article or the link to a film called UFOs, the CIA, and the assassination of John F. Kennedy. This is your item number three. Yes, and that is, that's a movie produced, directed by Sibella Clare, Paradigm Films, um, Prison Pictures, excuse me. And I know Sibella. She's a very good producer. She's fantastic. She's, and this is uh, also has, it goes under the name of E.T.'s Among Us, Volume 7. It's on 2BTV.com, T-U-B-I-T-V.com, but the link is right there. And you'll hear... Uh, President Kennedy was aware of UFOs, not just from 1947 and the Roswell crash, but probably from his World War II experiences on Guadalcanal as a PT boat captain. Well, remember, he was a member of naval intelligence. Absolutely, and that was his... That's how he knew. Yeah, but the thing is, he was exposed, he would have been exposed in Guadalcanal to the legends of the Guadalcanalese people who had been oppressed for over 100 years the people of Guadalcanal have seen lights coming out of the water and going into the mountains and going from the mountains mountains into the water. And many Guadalcanalese fishermen who went off looking for these dragonfish, as they call them, wound up coming back wounded, burned, and some of them did not come back at all. But the point is, there's an extraterrestrial presence on this planet Einstein and Oppenheimer acknowledged it. I've had this letter since 2016. 
Um, it's very disturbing to all the Einstein worshippers and the Oppenheimer worshippers, especially the Einstein worshippers. When I say that Einstein and Oppenheimer betrayed the human race by proposing a secret treaty with the alien presence and establishing themselves as the high priesthood of a new occult and secret religion. Well, I wouldn't call it new, Robert. It's the Hebrew well, religion. It's a throwback, new in the terms of uh, modern times. But what Barbara and I have discovered is that this occult group of scientists, Jewish scientists, embraced the aliens as their gods and established themselves as the high priesthood of a new religion that is based on worshiping the destroyer. Now, we had a little talk before the show about the reference to Krishna. In the Mahabharata, Arjuna is the prince and Krishna, an incarnation of Vishnu, is the charioteer. And Arjuna is heartbroken that they're engaged in a civil war and he's they're setting up for the last battle. And on the other side, he sees relatives, friends, cousins uh, that are going to be killed in the civil war. And it's at that point... Yeah, this is verse 12 of the Bhagavad Gita. That's right. Well, this is where Krishna, who is an incarnate being, manifests the destroyer, Shiva. Krishna is the man, the deity that manifested in that moment where he showed his thousand-armed form, 500 bows and 500 arrows at a time. That was Shiva the destroyer, the devil in Hindu creation mythology. So there are the three cosmic beings of Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. And then there's the incarnate being of a god in the flesh, Krishna. So that's where we make the distinction. But what Oppenheimer was identifying with was not with Krishna, he was identifying himself with Shiva. And it is a strange, strange coincidence that at CERN they have set up a statue of Shiva dancing the cosmic dance. They also have a statue of Shiva deep underground in the caverns. And the initiation, the opening of the Gotthard tunnel and the establishment of the CERN facility Involved a really strange mm. demonic. That's putting it very mildly, Robert. Very. That's putting it mildly. You and I saw it, and and we understand signs and symbolism, and it is demonic. And now I'm saying that science has been perverted. It has been hijacked by this cult, this Shiva cult, which worships death, and we are seeing mega death being practiced all around the world. Robert? Yes, Barbara? Robert, could, yeah, could you, because I forgot to do it, about the Einstein-Oppenheimer letter, um, could you make the link for Richard and the audience, please, and the other guests on the show tonight? Could you yeah. make the link between the reference to the Pentateuch in the uh, Oppenheimer-Einstein letter to Truman and the fact that Truman set up uh, J-12, and the, the J-12 yes. stands yeah, for Jehovah. Yeah. Okay, so here's the point. 
they volunteered to be the diplomat. Uh, I'm here. I'm here. Can you hear me? I am here. Suddenly, I can't hear anything. I'm speaking. Barbara, can you hear me? I hear you, Robert. Okay, thank you, Jake. Okay, so here's here's the, the gist of the situation. Einstein and Oppenheimer acknowledged these entities that apparently they felt had come through wormholes that they, they created at Trinity, Hiroshima, and Nagasaki. And they volunteered themselves to be the high priests of renegotiating a new covenant with the most wrathful deity of, of ancient times, which is Yahweh. They established MJ-12, and for years people have wondered what MJ stood for. And through certain documents that were leaked to me from the Defense Intelligence Agency. Well, I don't know if the show is still on the air. I'm going to, it might be my computer. I'm going to. Uh, I would say you have to reboot, Barbara. And see if the show's still Okay. Well, now, okay, stands for Majestic Jehovah. That is the term. And they did succeed in establishing... Oh, now that, that's a new take, as I've heard uh, Majestic 12 or Magic 12, the 12 being... Well, that's a confusion. Magic the, the, stands for something else. Magic stands for Material Assessment Joint Intelligence Committee. So, you know, there's, there's this mishmash of acronyms that people overlay. But I'm telling you, I have documents. It took me a long time to learn it. MAGIC and MJ-12 are related, but they're not the same thing. M-A-J-I-C stands for Material Assessment Joint Intelligence Committee. That deals with the reverse engineering of all the goodies that they were picking up at crash sites. But MJ-12 refers to, you might think of MJ and his 12 apostles as a, as a parallel. MJ stands for Majestic Jehovah, and this is confirmed by a 1954 memo in which President Eisenhower, dealing with this problem of having to negotiate a treaty with his extraterrestrial presence, which was signed at Lackland Air Force Base in Texas, March 15, 1954, he refers in this paragraph, he says, Dr. Einstein and Dr. Oppenheimer are the directors of MJ-12. Now, with regard to this memo or this draft letter, the Einstein-Oppenheimer letter of 1947, it is clear that Oppenheimer is in a kind of worshipful mode. He talks about the different characteristics of this celestial race that has decided to settle on Earth. Is this yeah, in the I, is this in the four yeah, page that's letter? The letter? That's all in the letter, and when you post it, you'll all be able to read it. I'm just trying to give you a synopsis. He goes through many legalisms, different ways of integrating a celestial civilization into Earth Earth life. Whether to make treaties individually with them, nation by nation, or to do it through the United Nations. But ultimately, and this is where I say the betrayal occurred was he decided, they decided to recommend the, that they make a covenant with the aliens and trade off what they needed, settlement rights, ranging rights, human resources, 
in return for tutelage. This is Oppenheimer's word, tutelage. Is this in the letter? This is all in the letter. Okay, okay. Tutelage. He's willing to submit himself to tutelage to learn their economic system and their uh, political system. And the two systems that he goes through, Oppenheimer goes through in the letter, are res nullis, talking about giving them land on planet Earth. He says that there is no more res nullis except Antarctica, that everything on planet Earth is claimed by one nation or another. So you can't really ask oh, some country to give a piece of itself to this alien settlement except Antarctica which is still res nullis. Well, wait, when was the Antarctic Treaty among all Earth nations signed? That, that was 57. So that's 10 years later. 10 years later, they got it all together. They all made an agreement that nobody owns Antarctica, just like nobody owns the moon. So that... Um, See, what I need to know is why would aliens, ETs, capable of interstellar flight, need to have a spot on Earth at all? Because you can't live in outer space. Of course you can. It's called a space station or a spaceship or a starship. Yeah, or probably, They've probably been doing it for a long time and, and the race will die out. They need sustenance, and which is Well, now, these, these are assumptions on your part, right? Of course. Well, do So you, you do not really know why because he doesn't specify in the letter Zero. why they Zero. were, and, and we're, we're getting an Zero. echo. Again, for improved service. I don't know where that's coming from. Yeah, someone's interfering with this show, obviously. Well, anyway. But the letter does not mark out why they should be ceded some territory? It just says that they've decided to settle on Earth, and they're not requesting. They're settling on Earth, and they have to deal with it. So this is what starts the negotiations with this alien entity. Yeah, and but wait, wait, wait. I, wait, you don't negotiate with Superman. Remember, don't spit into the wind, don't tug on Superman's cape. If aliens well, come... That seems to be with, his attitude. With, yeah, but the idea was they were presented with weapons that no one, nation on Earth could possibly defend against. So if you're trying well, to avoid right. annihilation and all they well, want is right. a piece of real estate, please let me finish. All they want is a piece of real estate, you give it to them if that's their negotiation, because they hold the high ground. That's right. And that's why they decided to stall. The United States government decided to play along. That's submit, a good tactic, yes. And stall until we could reverse engineer the technology that we've recovered from the crash disks to be able to put up to meet a, them on some kind of parody, yes. A defense, yes, a defense. But unfortunately, it seems, and this is my opinion, that slowly, over the period of 75 years, this alien intelligence has taken over the United States government and that it has seduced the leadership, the politicians, the bureaucrats, and through secret societies, to become one with them and to declare the American people to become one with them. Competence. Okay, there is some interference. Can someone either Somebody's cut that? Somebody's got a radio or something in the background. I, it, it, it could be circuit leakage because I was having a problem. I think with it's blood. Barbara's line because her microphone is not muted. 
but she wouldn't be listening to the radio at this time. Anyway, that's beside the point. The point is that they did decide to make this treaty by time until we could defend ourselves. As specified in the 1947 letter. But during that time, the alien presence has exercised more and more power, authority, and mind control over Well, people. this is your opinion, right? That's, of course, it's my opinion. Okay, well, other things. See, we need to clearly label factual data that's on the table from our attitude toward it, our opinions. Well, I'll just tell you this, the Li Hongzhou, who was the leader of the Falun Gong system in See, China, I radically disagree with you, and I'll tell you a very simple why. Go ahead. The House hearings. If, the House if, hearings if the, is only an attempt if, to get it back. If, if the aliens were truly in charge, we would not be free people. We wouldn't remember anything of this. We wouldn't have this discussion. We would not be having open hearings in the House of Representatives yes, on on UFOs, on you know spacecraft, on bodies leaking out to the general public in a way that they're taking very seriously as gauged by media reaction. In other words, if they were in control, none of this would be happening. That's not true. That's a fallacy. Why? I told you 12 years ago that there was an attempt to move through the United Nations for disclosure. And the reason given then was that the alien presence wants to be known. The alien presence wants to come out in the open and walk the earth among us, but not as equals. And so their plan is to put humanity on reservations after culling the herd. And everything that we've seen over the last... Do we have a link on this? Do we have a reference? Robert? It's called the UN UFO Disclosure Initiative of 2010, with which I, in which I worked with the United States Navy trying to make it happen. And I was told then that this was being done at the request or the demand of the extraterrestrial presence, that they want to be acknowledged openly. Okay, well, that's one perspective. And now we have a problem that... <laughs> well, I think we have MJ a few. <laughs> MJ-12 and the military-industrial complex, exactly as President Eisenhower warned us, arrogated to itself tremendous political, unauthorized, unconstitutional political and economic power, and they are loath to give it up. And the United States Senate and the Congress now feels the threat from that to be even worse than a threat from extraterrestrials. And so they are trying to wrest back from DISC the Defense Intelligence Security Command was an independent security apparatus that was established to keep the secrecy within the military-industrial complex. Didn't this so, this agency come up somehow in conversations around uh, New Orleans and Louisiana and yes, uh, Stone's film yes. and all that? I don't know. It wasn't in Stone's film, but it was headquartered in Alabama. And it does come up in the Torbit document. Ah, that's the one I was thinking of. Remember Torbit. that? That's, that's when yeah. you heard it. Yeah, yeah the, the Torbit, Torbit document. document. I found out. By the ago. way, remember, President, found, Trump wanted to, President Trump wanted to move Space Command to Alabama. And, and at, the, the, at the time, I, please let me finish. At the time I said, this has neo-Nazi trappings around it. And Biden has now refused and it's going to stay 
where it should have stayed in Colorado, which I find interesting. Well, Huntsville, Alabama is not Nazi town USA, especially after Werner von Braun. Yes, of course. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, well, this is what we're all talking about, is this um, convergence of power, the Nazi Fourth Reich, as Jim Morris called it, the paperclip Nazis insinuated themselves into... Yeah, and, and Joseph uh, Farrell has done astonishingly important yeah, work in this right. area. We've all, we've all gotten onto the same page. And now the problem is that a Fourth Reich has established itself in Washington, and they have actually declared um, American people uh, domestic terrorists and uh, combatants on the national battleground. That's part of the language of the NDAA. It goes back to, uh, you know, post-2001. Wait a minute, which, which NDAA? The one currently? The first one, the first one that came out, that used that language, designating the United States, quote-unquote, homeland as a battleground and all American citizens as combatants in that, on that I think you mean combatants. Yes, combatants and combatants, just really this different uh, way of pronouncing it, combatants. So that is uh, the situation that we face, and I am concerned that the Pentagon and the CIA and the deep state, which is really what's running the country, using Biden as a puppet, but Blinken... Ned Price, um, Jake Sullivan, Victoria Newland, they're the ones that are pulling all the strings and creating all of this tension. And now, since the Ukraine war has failed miserably, there's no more Ukrainians to fight. They've just been wiped out. Now they're moving the action. Wait, wait, wait. Ukraine is a country of 45 million people. I think we would notice if they were all missing. 12 million of them left the country, Richard, and their army has been decimated. In the Again, last, that well, seems to be your opinion. My well, data I says differently. I keep up with I keep up with people who know the data, like Colonel McGregor and Scott Ritter, the UN inspector, former United Nations atomic uh, weapons inspector, Colonel uh, Douglas McGregor, these are people who are telling Again, the world, what does this have to do with Oppenheimer and Trinity and Hiroshima and Nagasaki? The situation that they created and we're being led, some people are being led by the nose to think that it would be a good thing to have a war with Russia and that it could be won. They're banding about terms like tactical nuclear war or limited nuclear war and there's no such thing. Once the first nuke is... Give me a source and a link of who on our side, meaning the West, is saying this. That's all. What I'm saying to you is that people in the intelligence community know that Britain snuck in two tactical nuclear weapons into Ukraine. And the Russians found out about it. Again, do you have a source on this? There's so much Russian propaganda floating around. Okay, let me tell you this. Just find me a source. Biden, by, the, by the way, we have three minutes at the top of the hour, Biden, and then we're going to bring on David, okay? Ago, 
Biden announced two weeks ago that they're sending over 3,400 National Guard troops to Europe, to Ukraine. No, they're not sending them to Ukraine. They're sending them to Poland. Yes, Poland is not Ukraine. Okay. Be accurate. Thank you. they're, they're They're developing a narrative, and it sounds like a very small number. But last year, in March of 2022, I saw a report from France 24, and they announced that NATO has 144,000 troops in Germany and in Poland, 44,000 of them are Europeans, and 100,000 of them are Americans. So they're ready to jump into hell. And that is what I'm concerned about. They are willing to sacrifice our men, servicemen, servicewomen, on the fake narrative, the false hope that they can destroy Russia. And it can't be done without going down in flames along with them. Okay, we are at the uh, top of the hour, about to transition here to the... uh Next day, Saturday morning, Sunday, or Saturday evening, Sunday morning, you're on the other side of midnight. My guest this morning, Robert Morningstar, Barbara Honiger, David Sarita will join us at the top of the hour. And coming, looks like now in the last half hour, I have a very different take on quite a bit of this that you might find interesting. In fact, you might find it impossible to believe. All of which is good, because that's what The Other Side of Midnight is all about, trying to make you believe five unbelievable things before breakfast. We shall return. Midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time or hundred hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. 8 cents an episode, 2.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this uh, now Sunday 
morning, uh, Saturday evening, version of The Other Side of Midnight. My guests this morning are Robert uh, Morningstar, Barbara Honiger, who's been having some Skype problems, but uh, she seems to be back. Uh, and if not, we're going to try to connect with her phone. David Sarita has been incredibly patient, so I'd like to go back to our conversation and introduce David Sarita. And obviously, you've been listening to the whole show, and I'll bet you have a few ideas and opinions about what you have heard. Uh, sir, before you go on, please, I have one more thing to say. I'd like you to acknowledge that I've just sent you three items. I can't so you, read them, and I don't know the sourcing. So Okay, I can't. well, the sourcing is there, and it's It, it says items. something about a video from Jimmy Dore. I have no idea who Jimmy Dore is. Well, he's an he's a independent journalist. Unless got, it is Zelensky himself saying it. Talking. Unless he's calling for nuclear war. Unless okay. it is Zelensky on tape himself doing it. Yes, it is. It is. Then I need to look at it, but I can't do it during the show. Yeah, I so. know you can't do it now, but acknowledge that I sent you. Well, yeah, of course it's there, but I don't know so, what it says yet. So, all right, David. Hi, Richard. Hi. Hello. Um, <laughs> Welcome to Ground Zero. <clears throat> as, uh, I think as, the bomb went off. As, as Clyde and, would say, yes, yes, okay. <laughs> there's a lot of bombs that have been dropped here tonight. So, I want to, because... Oh, uh, you, you're, you're over-modulating, so either turn okay, down I'll step back your gain or move the mic away turn or whatever. Yeah, I'm over the mic way. So, the first thing I want to clarify... Still over-modulating. Still too loud. Okay, turn it down. Is that better? Yep, yep. Keep going. Keep going down? Yep. How's that? Better. Better. Okay. So, the first thing I want to clarify in my 45 years of studying meticulously religious documents is that as far as I can see, Yahweh is not a person. It's a tetragrammaton, which gets transliterated as Jehovah, Yahweh, Jah, and Allah. But you can't actually pronounce the tetragrammaton. It means I am. It is not a person. There's no deity associated with it. And in John, the book of John 844, this is interesting, and I think Robert will find this interesting. Yeah, you're still over-modulating. It's terrible. I'm still. Okay, put the microphone further back. Right, turn down better? your turn down your gain on Skype, maybe. Well, I have a dial on my mic. How's that? Still. Go ahead, talk, talk. Okay, so this is really important because at the foundation of what we call the Hebrew or Jewish religion, the religion itself had multiple fractions, and in of disagreement and worshiping different deities and non-deities because the tetragrammaton Yahweh is not a person it's infinite I am-ness consciousness which is similar to the Hindu Atman which is which is called the universal self but actually in John chapter 844 which is Jesus actually clarifies this argument with a group of Jews, he actually says this, you are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. So that's where Jesus is telling a group of Jews not that God had gone astray 
who started worshiping some of these multiple deities like the, the god Baal. And again, in the, in the beginning of the Jewish religion, it was not a unified religion. So, so when you say that Jews, certain Jews created the atomic bomb, let's go back to, I want to go back to a very important point about Japan, which is in my Skype link. You can actually see this in, in the chat. There's a historical record from um, a, a, I think it's the University of Hawaii, which is quite, quite, you know, drastic, that reveals that Japan was a problem. In wait, wait, Japan was what? Of a very serious problem at the, to the end of World War II, in that they had killed upwards of 10 million people. Six million of those were Chinese, Indonesians, Koreans, Filipinos, Indo-Chinese, among others. They were at war with their sector of the world, and they were unstoppable. So they were not this peaceful country, as many people might think. And actually, when when Einstein and and writes this famous letter to FDR in 1939, quoting Leo Zylard, as it's pronounced, having gotten to the point with, with Enrico Fermi and other um, atomic scientists that they, Einstein believed that the fission of uranium could produce copious amounts of electricity, energy, and to build bombs the mother of all bombs that could cause massive devastation. So Einstein's letter to FDR in 1939, which I have a link to in the chat, it's not one of my items, started the process of a whole group of scientists, and many who I'm going to name, because I know I knew them personally. And it's um, is actually um, Alfred O. C. Near is a German American scientist who who built the the equipment that was used to detect and isolate the uranium isotope that would lead Glenn Seaborg and and Macmillan who who shared the Nobel Nobel Prize for for isolating and extracting the explosive uranium isotope that 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 um, um, was identified by Alfred O. Senior. So, so this is this is how U, it's happening. U two thirty five. Yeah. So, I actually listened in the historical archives because I knew Seaborg and worked closely with him a number of times. I actually and, and he met was him. the first chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission. Yeah, he was the chairman under Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon, and advised presidents all the way up to Clinton and on atomic issues. And not only did, again, Seaborg is not a Jew, so when you're saying that Jews developed the bomb, and even though Oppenheimer, as I pronounce his name, is Oppenheimer, not Oppenheimer, uh, it was, was also becomes a professor at UC Berkeley, which is where Seaborg and his assistant Albert Giorso are hunting for even more powerful and more supermassive and potentially explosive particles. And my meeting with Seaborg at Berkeley was, was due to the fact that I worked closely with Bogdan Castle Maglich, who was 
with um, Louis Alvarez, a co-discoverer of the Omega Mason, which is a subatomic particle, in 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 and was given an award by President Kennedy and was a nuclear fusion scientist. Didn't Maglich didn't Maglich propose a kind of a tabletop fusion reactor for creating electricity? Well, not only did he propose it, he was well funded, and I worked with Maglich for over twenty, almost twenty years. Well, this is important. Because Maglich was close to Seaborg, and that's how I got to Seaborg and got to sit down with him, with Maglich, and and Albert Giorso at the Berkeley lab, and this is where it gets really interesting. Okay, so this is where how do the UFOs, referring to to Robert's um, document that he's going to lead us to, the, the letter with Oppenheimer that expresses the fact that ETs were, and it's very believable when you really understand how this works, and I can explain this to everybody really clearly, that when when an atomic bomb detonated on July 16, 1945 at Trinity, it released upwards of 5 million electron volt charge on the gamma rays. And the gamma rays give birth to antimatter. Because it, it, gamma rays are so powerful, they're the most powerful detectable well gamma rays are very very high energy very incredibly short wavelength electromagnetic radiation like light right. or radio waves but of an incredibly much higher power than light or radio waves yeah because the higher the frequency of a wave the shorter the wavelength the more power it the has. more energy so, yes so you need about two mev two million electron volt gammas to generate antimatter so that and and what's remarkable is what's called terrestrial gamma ray flashes coming from lightning and dark lightning which exists for only up to three and a half milliseconds and a millisecond is a thousandth of a second will generate 20 million electron volt gammas which then give birth to antimatter positrons and electrons now which then promptly the destroy each other well, they do they destroy each other almost instantaneously however that is what creates in my opinion in years of research the portal that caused okay so and, and i said this on art bell way in the early days i'm probably the first person who ever spoke about the theory that the 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 burst at trinity opened a portal that let these ETs or interdimensional craft come through, come into our dimension, fly around, and according to uh, um, the, the the released FBI documents, and I've gone through every one of them, we were chasing UFOs all over the United States after that blast, and then they seem to, it's almost like the, the so, so first you have the the, the, the production of antimatter, then you have theoretically a time dilation event where time warps, dilates, and actually when I was a physics student, I wrote a paper on time dilation, so I won't go into that, but I understand it very, very well how it works, because you have three ET crashes on all sides of Trinity uh, two years later, 1947, the same month of July, right? July 8th is approximately the date of Roswell, and July 16th, two years 
earlier is the date of the Trinity blast. And, right? and so, when was Aztec? Aztec and, and Corona, uh, the, okay, there's three crashes around it, but now there's a new book by by uh, Paola Harris and uh, the French... Uh, Jacques Vallée. Jacques Vallée that testifies to an ET event that happened immediately near Ground Zero. Oh, my. Of, yeah, and this new book I have in my possession, I haven't read it. So what I'm saying with all that data... Roberts, the, the letter he's trying to bring forth that apparently testifies that um, Oppenheimer um, admitted there was they were in the presence of ETs and whether these ETs are friendly or foe is, again, we don't know. But what we do know, again, about the Jewish religion, there were many Jews worshipping the Baal. That's the whole event of the of the of the prophet Elijah who goes up in the whirlwind. He had a duel at a temple um, over a, a bunch of, a group of Jews who were worshiping the Baal God, which is Baalbek and Lebanon, right? Baal, Baalbek, the, the giant stones of Baalbek are, are part of the, of the, whatever the technology that God or, you know, consort of gods and goddesses with him levitated those stones. It was a very powerful God. So again, early, what you would call Hebrew people or worshiping the Baal. So when Jesus says in John 8, 44, he's, he's not talking to all Jews. He's talking to a group of Jews. You've gone astray and you're worshiping a murderer and, and a destroyer God, right? So when you think of the consciousness of what Einstein's letter to FDR in 1939 set forth, it's not really Einstein who did much other than point the president. Well, well, all he did was lend his name as credibility so that FDR would read the damn thing. Read the damn thing and get to work and, and put money. And if you, I was listening to this long interview with Oppenheimer, actually, in the Historical Museum Archive. He didn't want to do it. He is the, these scientists didn't want to build bombs. They wanted to do theoretical physics research. Bombs. Well, do you remember that. that Robert Oppenheimer was the actual guy who discovered the math for black holes long before right. Wheeler back in 1939? And if he'd stuck with physics, and as I said in my promo for tonight's show, the big mystery to me was always why, why did they pick Oppenheimer to lead this team? The least likely guy that you would hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. You would never have picked Robert Oppenheimer to be leader of a cutting edge engineering team to make a workable device. He was a theory guy. He was he was an he was an academic. He smoked a pipe. He 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 flirted with communism. He was he was an intellectual. So how come he was made head of? this incredibly important war project. That's what I'm going to talk about in the last half hour of the show tonight. Go ahead. He, he becomes a professor at Berkeley in, I think it says 1936 here in Wikipedia, and he dies in 1967. So I showed up in Berkeley with my dad because and my mom and my brothers in about 1965. My dad was getting a PhD there. And again, Seaborg and Albert Giorso who were were particle hunters and also 
The other thing, okay, so in my meeting with Seaborg, and I, I want to, this is really incredible. I mean, the fact that Seaborg told me this stuff is really mind-blowing. But Seaborg, they were at the, at the NTS, the Nevada test site, they were working on what's called heavy ion nuclear uranium ion propulsion at the Nevada test site rocket station under a contract with EG&G. Yo, we're, and so we're, they, hang on. We're talking about the NERVA nuclear rocket program, right? Yeah, you're talking about NERVA. Yeah, you're talking about NERVA. And so Seaborg oversaw that as part of the program. And for people that don't know what this is, this was putting a small megawatt-level nuclear reactor in a casing with a, with a nozzle, flowing hydrogen through it, heating the hydrogen through the nuclear fission going on in the fission reactor, spewing the guts of it out the back end, you know, action, right. reaction, a thrust. You could never use it in the atmosphere. It would only be used in space, but they tested it up to where it actually worked for, I, I forget, like an hour-long test in the Nevada desert in the atmosphere in the 1960s before Kennedy canceled the program in favor of Apollo. And guess what? So there I am with Seaborg. I'm going to get into UFOs because I'm going to ask him with Giorso and Magwitch present. We're eating sandwiches, sitting outside, you know, at the picnic tables up at the up at the Lawrence, at the Berkeley lab, right? And this is in Seaborg's last days. And and it's the the Nerva tests were were deemed successful, and I believe. Okay, this is what's interesting, because I asked Seaborg in the car one day. I was driving him to the Orange County Airport. This is a different meeting, and I asked him about Howard Hughes and and why. Just think about it for a minute. Why was Hughes moved to Nevada, Kitty Corner to Area Fifty One? So watch what happened. So. I started asking him about Howard Hughes because I knew John Meyer, who was very close to Howard Hughes, and where this connects in a minute, um, is that there was nothing wrong with Howard Hughes. That was an actor they had in there, and Hughes knew too much, and Hughes was bribing presidential candidates, including Bobby Kennedy, to end atomic testing in Nevada and pay them a million dollars. He was going to pay, pay them to stop the testing. So wow. when I bring this up with Seaborg, he starts shaking. His whole face and his jaws and his cheeks are like flabbergasted. And he's so mad in the car. And he said, Hughes almost ended the atomic testing. And they had to silence him. So what Seaborg admitted to so me... So what, they put him under house arrest? What they did is... They didn't. That wasn't. That wasn't. According to John Meyer Hughes, who died in the hotel alone and isolated with no witnesses to his physical death, what John Meyer told me. I think Meyer's passed away as well, and Meyer had to live in exile in Vancouver, Canada. He was not allowed to live in the United States. Well, was this they, the guy that Hughes ostensibly picked up on the highway as a hitchhiker? No, 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 no. Meyer ran for president. He was he was uh, the second closest aide to Howard Hughes. Oh, okay, okay. So Seaborg basically was so furious he pretty much admitted they had to silence Hughes. But Hughes was there. 
He because and and, he, and he, he admits this to you in this luncheon conversation outside with sandwiches. All right, he admits it to me, and then I tell him the story of when in, in about 1968 at Berkeley, growing up there, when I saw the flying saucer with the crowds of people running outside, and the the lab that we're sitting in, I said, would have had a perfect view of the flying saucer, which lasted over 20 minutes in total pandemonium. And Seaborg told me, his assistant leans over, and you have no idea who Albert Giorso is. He's probably one of the most brilliant particle phys physicists in the history of America. People don't know these names. They don't know Alfred O. C. Near is the real co-discoverer. He should have shared the Nobel Prize with Macmillan and Seaborg for discovering the explosive uranium isotope B-235, but he didn't. But the bottom line is, is Giorso tells me Seaborg has access to 37 levels above top secret. And Seaborg's very serious with me about the UFO. So what he tells me is, is that there is no program in the United States doing anti-gravity. He said if we had anti-gravity, nuclear fusion would not be necessary. And the reason it wouldn't be necessary is once you cancel out gravity and inertia, then you don't need any energy to go ultra velocities, right? Because you can go 90% the speed of light on a couple of volts because you don't weigh anything well, anymore. Anti-gravity and infinite energy, free energy, perpetual motion and all that, they're all part of the same equation. Once, once so, you tap the dimensional torsion field, hyperdimensional physics, you've got everything, including... You've got everything, and that's in, what Seaborg in, is Including, saying. David, immortality. Right. And so, yeah, because aging, which is part of inertia and gravitational force, would slow down. So there's Seaborg... He looks really, truly like he's not hiding anything from me. He's saying... This is this 30, is at your picnic lunch. Yeah, this is at the picnic lunch, and Maglitch is just looking. He's wondering, like, oh, my God, David's talking about UFOs to Seaborg, and, and, and Seaborg's taking me very seriously. And he said, we don't... Because, remember, we talked about Nerva, and we know Seaborg was chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission under Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon. So he oversaw NERVA because NERVA was a branch of the Nevada test site yeah. workings, which was kitty corner to Area 51. So I started getting into the Bob Wazar Element 115 idea because because Seaborg and Giorso were heading towards the super heavy massive elements like well there was a theory back then there were so-called islands of stability because when you build elements and then find them like we and the russians and others have now done heavier and heavier isotopes beyond uranium which is the heaviest naturally occurring isotope in our current reality they tend to decay very fleetingly like in milliseconds right. or a few seconds yeah, right. or microseconds so the proposal was there were islands of stability further up in the in the periodic table where you could have super heavy elements and they would hang around for more than the thousandth of a second. Right. And the more massive they are, the more energy they have. When they right? decay, yeah. It's, um... When they decay, and, 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 and that's, again, how your antimatter, which I believe is your portal to the other side, 
because in the early physicists, including Richard, Richard Feynman believed the the anti-electron, which is the positron, was going backwards in time. But it's only going backwards in time relative to our time. From its perspective, it's going forward in time, which is backwards in time for us, right? If you, But you, the two can't meet, right? So in the same sense, can you have a stable form of supermassive element 115? <clears throat> and I was telling Seaborg about Lazar, actually, in that meeting. And he was very interested because because they hadn't got to 115 yet. They, they were just underneath 115. If you look on the periodic table, you'll see Seaborgium, which is a supermassive particle, way heavier than Which is more named massive. after who? Glenn Seaborg, yeah. <laughs> so Seaborg is with me in his last days, and then I exposed him in this article that I got published for doing experiments on pregnant women at Vanderbilt University and boy did he get mad at me like he, he felt betrayed that he had opened up to me but let's go back to Howard Hughes for a second because Howard Hughes was such a threat to Seaborg being the richest man in the world and immensely powerful I ended up interviewing a woman who worked at um at Hughes Aircraft in Los Angeles and worked in the in the room where they print the blueprints and he printed blueprints for a full-blown flying saucer which confirms my theory that the reason Hughes was really stationed in Vegas was because he was doing these regular trips to Area 51 of course he would have been involved in it He's the aviation expert of America. He is aircraft. So, what 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 Seaborg is telling me? Well, he me built the Spruce Goose. <laughs> right. We had to shut see. We had to shut Howard Hughes down. He did not die. They made a deal with him. He probably survived the rest of his life. In you know, in in you know, those theories you have about you know, about Elvis surviving and living under a different identity. I mean, I know this is hard to, hard for people to understand because you've all seen the movie on Howard Hughes, but I actually knew the author of this book called Next to Hughes and had meetings with him in his office in Beverly Hills. I'm trying to remember his name. It might have been Richard Hack. He wrote a book called Next to Hughes, and he wanted to know everything I knew about about Howard Hughes. So Hughes, again, is part of the equation because we had – the craft that we that we retrieved from Roswell, but we also retrieved the craft at the Battle of Forty Two over Los Angeles and the Battle of Forty Two over LA. Okay, look, we're at the bottom of the hour. Let's hold yeah, it there. Okay. Okay. Yeah. My guest this morning, too numerous to mention, but I will anyway. Barbara Honiger, I think she's back with us. Robert Morningstar and now David Sarita. It's really nice to have first person testimony from someone who has actually interacted and talked to some of these key principles. You're on the other side of midnight. Um, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode, $0.02.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. Well, that's not working. <laughs> oh, my, my. Let's try this. There we are. Sorry about that, guys. Last half hour to go. You're on the other side of midnight. Um, what I have to say in terms of everything we've talked about tonight is probably too long to fit into this half hour. So I'm just going to let David continue because first-person testimony on these controversial subjects is incredibly important. And I may have a couple of snippets to add, but we're going to do a part two of this because the data that I've uncovered is so revolutionary and so controversial, and you're not going to believe it, that I think it requires its own real space, and I don't want to truncate it, because if I'm right, it's really, really important. So, David, please continue. But, but, Richard, we're not going to be on the show tomorrow night. No, no, I, I didn't say believe. tomorrow night. No, I didn't oh. say tomorrow night. No, oh, okay. No, no, no. We will do this because this is too important a subject, and there will be developments between now and probably two weeks from now that will fit in perfectly politically to what I'm going to lay out. So, it's, I mean, I've been doing a lot of research, even though my uh, bum leg has been, you know, hampering me. And I've got stuff that's pretty amazing, and we'll go through it when there is time. So, David, let's uh, let's come back to you. Okay. So remember, remember that um, it, it was Richard Feynman who said that the anti-electron, which is the positron, which is generated during an atomic blast and also during lightning strikes, you can get 20 MeV gamma rays, which will definitely generate antimatter. Now, watch this. Because if Feynman is saying that that anti-electrons, which carry uh, electromagnetism, you know, the the electrical force backwards, you can explain the time dilation when Trinity exploded, and you got all these UFOs that the FBI is chasing all over America, and they chase them all the way to what we now call Roswell. And we, and also the the um, the two other crash sites. Um, I, I've been to the other crash sites as well in person, and uh, I've been to the Trinity site a number of times, even with my kids and wife, my my deceased wife recently. And so you see this time dilation, right? And you see that it's really actually happening 
with the anti-electron, the positron. So that can explain why the the three UFO crash sites um, on all sides of Trinity occur in within days of July 16th. It, it's July the 8th, I believe, is the date we have for the Roswell site crash, and then you have the Plains of St. Augustine crash, and you have you you have Aztec. So why did that happen? Well, now we know because Feynman's saying the antimatter is going back in time. So let me let me get back to Seaborg here and Giorso. I found this on the chemistry.berkeley.edu site. This is really interesting. It says the and this is in regards to Oppenheimer, as I pronounce his name. After the College of Chemistry and Nobel laureate Glenn Seaborg, remember Seaborg is part of the Manhattan Project. He works for Oppenheimer at this point because Oppenheimer is is his senior, right? And Seaborg's a young um, chemist actually at that time. And his team, including Darwin Hoffman, discovered plutonium. So remember, it's saying the Nobel laureate Seaborg and his team, including Darwin Hoffman. So you have a female in there, again, who is not credited, who did not um, share the Nobel Prize with Macmillan and Seaborg. It says Lawrence's uh, radiation laboratory, Lawrence Berkeley Radiation Laboratory, began to contract with the U.S. Army to develop the atomic bomb, which became known as the Manhattan Project. You see... Berkeley physics professor Robert Oppenheimer was named scientific head of the project in 1942. See, now, what I think is interesting about dates and matrices of dates is 1942, of course, we're coming, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're at, the, at the front of World War II, and you have the Battle of 42 UFOs over um, the the Los Angeles area, where, where over 1,400 rounds of munitions were shot at these UFOs hovering over, you know, uh, um, not Manhattan Beach. It's, it's just south of Manhattan Beach in, in, in that area. I know that area so well because I live there. So you have this UFO incident, which according to Marsh, George C. Marshall documents, they retrieved those craft. And they went to Muroc Field, which later becomes Edwards Air Force Base. And what's interesting about, again, the FBI documents show eight UFOs hovering over Edwards Air Force Base the day we shot, according to Boyd Bushman, using the Tesla death ray, we shot down the Roswell um, flying saucer using the Tesla death ray, which, which is a form of of uh, microwave it, it's part of the weapon the microwave well it's some kind uh, of energy ray yeah they still use a magnetron the magnetron is the core of the microwave generator but there's another configuration tesla had for the death ray so this is this is boyd bushman lockheed martin you know senior scientist who also worked for howard hughes <laughs> bushman David, worked for howard hughes so david i have some information on, on hang on a second because i'm just going to finish this point okay as part of the project, Seaborg, Albert Giorso. See, that's that's who I met. And Stanley When Thompson you say the went, project, which project? The Manhattan Project. Okay, okay, good. Yeah, thank you. So, so again, headed by Oppenheimer. So that means Giorso is working for Oppenheimer, who would have been very young. Seaborg would have been quite young working for Oppenheimer. And Stanley Thompson went on to discover Curium, American and Berkelium in the 1940s. In 1950s... Wait, wait, do you mean americium? Another radioactive element, which was named Californium. And again, 
Like, we're up to element 118 now, Ogden Nasson. So, so, so Lazar's element 115, we've already passed it. Yeah, Lazar's information was, again, wrong. He was fed disinformation because the physics is what they're guarding at yeah, the I highest possible they, level. You remember, remember these elements only need to exist for a billionth of a second and nanosecond to do their job, which is to open the portal and create antimatter for a tiny fraction of a second, which opens the portal, right? That's that's my opinion when I say that the – I want to clarify that part, that the, the discovery of antimatter – by all of the famous names in the early physics community, the belief was, you see, if there's an anti-electron, a positron, and there's an anti-proton, which would be a negative proton, right? And and protons and neutrons are where most of the, the mass in an atom is in the nucleus, and that's where your quarks Yeah, they're almost 2,000 times heavier than electrons or right. positrons. They're, they're, yeah, so think about this for a minute. 1,800 times, okay. When you when you understand that you you don't need stable element one one five you only need it to do its job for that tiny fraction of a second and here's what these early physicists believed and this is going to be shocking for people and it's part of my new thesis they believe if there's an anti electron and your body has countless trillions of electrons in it, right, circulating around all the shells depending on the element and all the atoms in your body, the hydrogen and the was were mostly water, right? So you have your hydrogen, your oxygen is your water, which were about 87%. That means that means that there can be anti material, antimatter material, and therefore anti-people and anti-planets and anti-solar system and these early physicists that I'm, I'm naming all of them, Niels Bohr, Max Planck, I mean all of them were in on this, that there is an anti-galaxy, which means the other side of a black hole is an antimatter galaxy. The whole galaxy, everything <coughs> is spinning the other way. So each particle, which you measure its spin from the top, just like Earth looking from the north down, and we, we See, got into All right, this. David, this, yeah. is, this is why we're not going to have time to get to my ideas, which we'll get to in another show. No, no, this is where I'm going to finish, and you should start on your ideas. No, 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 we don't have time. I'm sorry, we don't have okay, time. So where, where this goes is you go back to the atomic blast, you go back to Robert's... Um, letter where apparently Oppenheimer is admitting it wouldn't surprise me if during the test they witnessed a craft and I've seen a photograph of what could be extrapolated as the shape of a disc-shaped craft remember near the the detonation and again at the Lawrence Berkeley lab when they're doing these high energy experiments and they generate you generate gamma rays, you're going to generate antimatter. And the craft that I saw hovering right over the freaking campus is right right in full view of the Lawrence Berkeley lab. And once again, you have a UFO. Okay, you're skipping around from Trinity to your Berkeley experience. Yeah, because, because that's where Seaborg and Oppenheimer are. They're sure, right sure. there. That's where he's a professor. In okay, your model is you need antimatter to open the wormhole. My physics says you don't, and I've got Russian data okay. 
to provide well, but it, but it's the same general idea. By 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 torching off Trinity, we open, and I'm going to have to document this, an extraordinary portal between dimensions, or from within the bubble, the prison, the phantom zone that I'm just you know discussed many times that the data says we could be in and whatever's outside. And that's a very complicated show to do and to document and to do it in a way that people can follow. So I don't want to truncate it. And I wanted to give you guys most of the time tonight. And I just kind of miscalculated how much we would have left. So we'll save this model with supporting information for another part two. But again, I think we've touched on some very important political things, which is like, you know, Pearl Harbor suddenly showing up out of nowhere as a foreshadowing of 911, the idea of Christopher Nolan's movie showing up as a foreshadowing of a nuclear event in war in Ukraine is not a crazy idea. Not at all. So yeah, in Christopher Nolan's previous film, The Tenant, is all about a U two. I'm trying to remember which uranium isotope it is that causes. It's a it's a weapon that makes everything go backwards in time, which makes oh perfect my. sense because antimatter is going backwards in time. Okay, that let's go. Let's tenant. go to Robert because he had some questions to ask you about a couple things. Okay. Actually, I wanted to say, David, you were being guided by your intuition or your higher spirit. When you were talking to Seberg, uh, chairman of the AEC, it turns out that the Atomic Energy Commission is the ultimate repository of all UFO information. Because in the 1940s, they determined that UFOs are radioactive. UFOs were seen over Oak Ridge. I met a man who was five years old at the time, this is 1945, his parents worked at Oak Ridge and they took, took him in the car uh, to work. And uh, he, they were approaching Oak Ridge and they saw a UFO, a flying saucer, hovering over it and then quickly departing. Now, Seaborg had to have known everything about UFOs and you were asking the right man, but of course he could never divulge anything to you. The other thing is Howard Hughes and flying saucers, the Aztec crash, March 15th of 1948, which resulted in the recovery of an almost intact flying saucer with a crack in the hull that made it possible to break in. The first people to get to that flying saucer were Hughes Company oil surveyors, and they made a full report to Howard Hughes on everything they found before the Army got there. And Hughes was intimately involved with trying to reverse engineer uh, UFOs. And of course, the Hughes Tool Company and now uh, Hughes Aircraft is one of the biggest players in the military industrial complex. The last thing is that the Roswell crash happened almost two weeks before the July 16th Trinity test, but it was brought down using high intensity microwaves being beamed by eight radars. These uh, two UFOs, had been seen reconnoitering Los Alamos and going near the Trinity site. And so the Air Force, Army Air Force, decided to turn eight very powerful radars that they had in West Texas and in New Mexico 
and concentrate them on the craft, and that's how they brought down the destabilized. Yeah, Lloyd Bushman's testimony is that a friend of his who was a Navy doctor was treating wounds on a pilot who had just used this classified weapon from his plane, uh -huh. a, a beam weapon, to take down the Roswell craft. I know Stanton Friedman believes that it was regular radar, but you have to understand regular radar which is generated in a magnetron. I know exactly what a magnetron schematic looks like. I know how it works. It's a, it's a tungsten coil emitter in a box that is very dense metal that traps the, the radio wave coming off the tungsten emitter, which makes it a very dense, um, basically high-frequency um, wave that questionably most likely would not disturb an aircraft. It definitely doesn't disturb our aircraft. We know that we use magnetrons, which again are microwave um, generators, to detect UFOs. The question is, is there a different way to make a magnetron according to Tesla's... See, Tesla... Well, hang on, David. Uh, a, a magnetron can be part of what I call a torsion field weapon. Right. And, and that's the physics that they don't want us to know. So even if there was leakage that we brought a UFO down with a human technology, they would lie about the technology to keep the secret of the real physics secret. Absolutely. And, and the Tesla death ray, according to FBI documents, again, that were all declassified. Was a torsion field weapon. Yeah, they took the Tesla death ray to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in 1943, which is where they developed the Tesla death ray. And so it, it, the tie, and that's where the Roswell craft was taken to Wright-Pat. So, so we had a weapon. It, you're right. It would. They would never tell us exactly what it is. I don't believe it would be regular microwaves. I don't like either. They, no. No, they're not strong enough. And um, it would. Well, be you can like, shield them. You know, you it, it's, just, it's, just, it's just a Faraday cage and uh, right. military weaponry, aircraft, the EC-747, uh, you know, the looking glass, they're all shielded from electromagnetic radiation. So if you don't think that interstellar travelers or dimensional travelers have shielding technology for good old EM, then you're not in the same universe. Yeah, no, it doesn't make that doesn't make sense. It would be something way more powerful. That's where I well, it's a different physics. It's it different underlies physics. electromagnetism and gravity, etc. Anyway, continue. So anyway, I mean, I got into arguments with Stanton Friedman about. It. I mean, Stanton Friedman had a bachelor's degree in physics, so he was not a PhD. But that doesn't mean. He and didn't. he had the most incredible non-interest and curiosity about. UFO physics of anybody that I've ever seen. And he's quite. I know. I know people like him, and I respect that he, as as a junior physicist, would have taken on this subject for life. I you know I appreciate that. I, I yeah, but he took it on from the classified blacked out documents, as opposed from having to recreate the physics of how they move. Quoting right. uh, no, quoting uh, Copernicus. Yeah, I, I, I definitely, you know, rub shoulders with him at UFO conferences. By the I way, I, I, I made one major error. I said that Glenn Seaborg was the first AEC administrator. No, that was David Lilienthal. Seaborg didn't show up until later. He didn't show up until later. He, he started under Kennedy. So yep, Kennedy, yep. Johnson, and Nixon. 
And then he worked with Magwitch under the Advanced Physics Corporation in Irvine, and it's where I worked with Magwitch. And I, you know, I was sitting down with Murray Gelman, the discoverer of quarks, and, and again, I'm like a fly on the wall. I mean, I'm learning from these guys. I'm doing all this military communication and corporate communication and reading all the documents, which I still have a lot of them in my briefcase. I even have the blueprints for Magwitch's tabletop fusion reactor. I, I can see it right here. I, I can see a total uh, schematic cutaway. And Magwitch and I had... Did, did, this- did Magwitch depend on with- Kind of drifting far afield here. Did he depend on on uh, magnets or superconductor magnets too? Yes, yes. He relied on a six tesla injector magnet. Although we can go way past six tesla now. Like well, tesla- this is why I bring this up because there's been this new, you know, bump of curiosity in the South Koreans claiming they've invented a room temperature superconductor, which Don't if that was everything. true, and the quench. Um, value of the magnetic field is sufficiently high, this could revolutionize the Maglitch tabletop fusion reactor. Idea. Well, Maglitch told me before he died, this, this, and this goes into Nerva and Seaborg, and Maglitch and Seaborg had some big fights. You know, I can One imagine. thing you know, I know from <laughs> sitting down with physicists, I mean, you and Robert fighting is tiny. These guys are yelling <laughs> at each other at the top of their lungs. And each one of Give them, of course, each, wait, wait a second, each one of them, you know, really, really appreciates that argument. Like that, arg- ar- the argumentation is what breeds the higher Of thinking. course. You have to fight. So, so people in the audience, if you're hearing fighting, you have to fight. I mean, there's so many viewpoints. There's so many different angles of data trying to reconstruct a proper timeline on that's why I'm giving you evidence about antimatter and antimatter. Well, reports. given that I think now, based on my own political research, that most of the 20th century has been skewed, you know, Emily Dickinson fashion to where no one can figure it out to hide the real physics, the hyperdimensional physics, I, I, I can believe almost anything about the prevarications by all these physicists because. If they weren't in the tiny loop that knew that our current physics is a subset of a much larger physics, they would argue till they were dead that what they believed was I right. I know, and imagine, imagine, like Russia has spies at Los Alamos. After everything Oppenheimer did and his whole team, which there's many names we don't even know, and I, I know many of them personally, they, they steal the atomic bomb and test it in 1946. This is a Russian. And then suddenly, and they get the bomb, and next thing you know, we put missiles in Turkey and Eastern Europe, and then Russia sends their missiles to Cuba, and you start the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, here's another thing. The 1952 UFO sightings over the U.S. Capitol and the monument were only... Okay, that was, again, July, the same time dilation window, right, And uh, of 1952. And in November, we detonated the first hydrogen bomb, and they had spies that stole the freaking hydrogen bomb and got mm-hmm. the blueprints to the hydrogen bomb. And next, okay, I want to go to Maui right now, because Maui happens on, uh, on August the 8th, 
Hiroshima was August 6th, and you're not accounting for your leap years because there's 365 and a quarter days a year. And, and Nagasaki was, was August the 9th, and that's the day my wife died, August 9th, two years ago. And Maui, again, there's multiple fires. It's not like one fire. We still don't know where and how it started. The nope. fire chief has not told us anything. In perfect timing, if you count your leap years, you're right in the window between the two dates, which, which is August 6th is Hiroshima. And again, during Hiroshima, you had five million electron volt gammas, which would have created some antimatter. So there might have been some portal in time dilation. And so they could, why does Maui connect? Was it, was it some terrorist who decided to light fires because the winds picked up or nope. was it some interdimensional event that links the two dates now i've counted the number of dates between between um uh, uh hiroshima which is which is the 6th of august and the maui date which is august 8th and there's a harmonic and the harmonic it corresponds to the number uh, the circumference of the earth in miles to that to the number of days between to one to 1.44 the one I'll, I'll tell you what we have to do given that my numbers are correlating weirdly as usual with some of yours when we do part two of this which will be we might do it next sunday yeah Cause we're cause, just getting started you're just yeah, getting yeah because because saturday we're going to do india and russia and the moon Sunday next would be the time to do this because the data I've been quietly you know, accumulating on both um, Trinity, Oppenheimer, his background, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, modern tests, and weirdly enough, Maui and, quote, UFOs, it's bigger than can fit into just, you know, a half hour segment. So, right, so once you understand time dilation and you understand Richard Feynman on antimatter going backwards in time or anti-electrons, positrons going backward in time. Yeah, but wouldn't all antimatter in that model go backward in time? I know. It would all go backwards in time. So then you understand the date of Maui and they're describing Maui looks like. Well, let, let, me, let, let me let me throw another word clue into the mix. Okay. Maui occurred on August 8th, yeah. right? August 8th is the 8th month of the year. So the 8th day, month, oh, wow. which is an 8-8, eight, eight, which, which in neo-Nazi code is Heil Hitler. Wow. I think this is a signature of who may have done Hawaii. Well, just Barbara, Barbara, go ahead. I wanted to point out that 88 is also the Lion's Gate of Sirius. And oh, you're right. It was the Lion's Gate when Maui went off. Oh, my God. Which is Hiroshima. Explain, explain to our audience what the Lion's Gate is. Well, in the ancient Egyptian belief system, um, the most important uh, object in the sky was actually Sirius, the dog star, because... It uh, rose heliac, heli, I can't ever pronounce it, heliacally. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it rose, um, it rose uh, just before the sun or just after the sun. Oh, the, oh the so-called helical rising, yeah. The helical rising of Sirius um, 
happened just before, by this magnificent coincidence, um, just before the Nile flooded, which of course was the source of life for all of all of the population of ancient Egypt. Yeah, we got and, one minute till the end of the show, okay. guys. And and the the Lion's Gate uh, was August eighth, um, which is when they um, when Sirius lined up with the Sphinx and the pyramids. Yep. Wow. What a, see, there's. So there's something about Maui. It's way deeper than we can realize. Well, and that's start with it's at nine, start with David's nineteen point five, give or take. Yeah. Right, Remember, geodetic latitude, the, geocentric. Anyway, Maui we we are out of time. We literally are out Maui of time. Going up the flames as Beijing Beijing was underwater. Yeah, All we have to do, Richard, is create some antimatter. We can go backward in time and make the yeah, show longer. <laughs> hey, guys, I want to thank everyone this morning. Barbara Honiger, Robert Morningstar, uh, David Sarita. And there will be more to come. We're definitely going to do part two next Sunday. Mark it on your calendars. You're not going to want to miss it because we're going to start out by laying out the Enterprise Mission model for nuclear technology and hyper-dimensional physics, which is the answer to a lot of the questions that we have raised, but not answered tonight. So until tomorrow night, when we have Chandra and guest talking about the, uh, um, the uh, um, well, I'm, I'm forgetting my words here, about the, the first year anniversary of, uh, of the, uh, uh, web space telescope we will definitely join you tomorrow night if i can get my computers to work and they don't seem to want to work oh how weird <laughs> <laughs>